Hello, and welcome back to our discussion of the Pentateuch. Today, we are introducing the Pentateuch. Yes, today is our introduction lecture. Um, I realize that this is a little bit confusing because I definitely introduced the Pentateuch last time in the last lecture, but this is the one occasion where this confusion is kind of necessary. Um, when biblical scholars, especially Christian and traditional or conservative uh, Christian scholars, talk about the Pentateuch um, and start talking about questions of criticism, i.e. low criticism like textual criticism, high criticism like authorship, provenance, all that fun stuff, um, because they don't want to be seen as, quote, critiquing or criticizing the Bible, they call it introduction instead. So this is, in fact, our introduction lecture because we are going to be talking primarily about Pentateuch introduction. I know it's super confusing, uh, but I promise this is extremely relevant to our discussion. I definitely want to bring up a lot of these issues because it is a complicated, messy field with a lot going on. Um, and also because a lot of the stuff that people are going to bring to attack the Bible, either because they're, you know, convinced that the, there's nothing to be taken away from this book or uh, convinced that, like, I shouldn't be spending this much time talking about it, um, oftentimes it's going to be coming in the field of introduction and the, the stuff about the book rather than what we find in the book itself, um, so even when I started this project, even when I listed the topic on, on the internet, it, it was very much with the understanding that, yes, the bulk of our time would be spent actually reading uh, the Pentateuch, but that I would at least spend a day talking about the, the introductory matters. Um, so yeah, that's our topic for today. Old Testament introduction and Pentateuch introduction specifically. Um or criticism, if you prefer. I'm not terribly scared of the term in this particular case. Um, I should emphasize that, again, like I talked about last time, I am going to be kind of coming at this from a moderate perspective. Um, I recognize that, this, that I'm going to be diving into some really contentious territory on this one, that there is a lot of scholarly debate ongoing about this. Um, and unlike many scholarly debates, this is not one that admits of a lot of moderation, in my experience. Um, as I said last time, and as I've told my students many, many times, anytime that you're dealing with issues revolving around Christianity, Jewish religion, or any of these tenets of faith, um, you're going to get a lot of very fierce and very polarizing discourse when you enter academ academic discussion. You know, if you're talking about various interpretations of something like Plato, um, generally you're going to get the, the gamut as far as uh, perspectives and, and interpretations are concerned. There's, there's no, nothing on the line for scholars talking about Plato. Like, you will occasionally find scholars who are particularly inclined to interpret Plato as, say, being an apologist for pederasty, um, some of those you might question whether or not their convictions are also aligned with Plato's on this one, or Plato's as they perceived. Um, and you'll find people who think that Plato is an ardent heterosexual advocate. Um, there's definitely all kinds of positions, you know, between those two extremes. But when you come to the Bible, you're going to find that people are going to be staunch traditionalists or staunch, quote, liberals. They're going to either interpret the Bible very conservatively or very liberally. And the, the writers who have sort of these moderate or intermediary positions are going to be kind of hard, hard to track down. 
Um, in part because it's sexier to say something extreme. Like, for it's easier to get press and notoriety if you are coming at the Bible from the perspective of the world was created in seven literal days and I don't care what science has to do with it and any evolutionist who says that it took billions of years is wrong. Um, that's sexy because, you know, it causes controversy and this is usually being spoken at like a PTA meeting and, you know, newspapers love to report on this stuff and emphasize how much uh, conservative Christians are like crazy. Um, likewise, it's super sexy for you to say the Bible is complete nonsense and there is no reason for anyone to take this book seriously. And actually all the archeological evidence shows that this thing is garbage, which is also super sexy, uh, because it confirms the perspective of many atheists. It also is controversial and will inevitably get like pushback from Christians and is also really fun to report on. Um, so if you are in fact navigating the internet and you start looking up any of the questions that we're talking about today, you are likely to find a lot from one of those two camps and not a lot from people who are trying to sit on the fence or, or trying to understand both sides. Um, you will also find a lot of people who will argue that there isn't room for fence sitting. Um, honestly, I think that there's a case to be made there. Like, this is, at the end of the day, serious because it involves everyone and their souls and their salvation. Like, if we are going to be perfectly, perfectly honest here, like, if we're going to blow out our perspective beyond the Pentateuch and look at the entire Bible for a second, it is essentially arguing that you need to believe in Jesus or go to hell. Um... Which are some pretty high stakes here. Like, the obvious two reactions to this are, okay, I'm going to totally believe in Jesus in order to save my soul. Or, alternatively, you're going to say, that's nonsense, I don't believe any of it. Um, those are the two logical perspectives to take here. You can't very well say, yeah, I'm going to believe that you're all right about this, but I'm going to go to hell anyway because it sounds like fun. Not many people like to take that stance. Nor are you going to get a lot of people who are like, I'm going to believe in Jesus, but I think the entire Christianity thing is, you know, a tower or like castles built in the sky and it's all nonsense. Um, there are some people who believe that. Like, you can definitely find some scholars in the 18th century especially who seem to be pretty keen to deny the Bible, but, you know, confirm its message. Um, but at the end of the day, the two positions that you're going to find most often are, okay, I believe the Bible and therefore think that everyone should believe the Bible because otherwise they're going to hell. Or alternatively, I'm not going to believe the Bible and therefore it is nonsense and anyone who believes it is a fool. These are kind of the only two positions that are permitted by the extreme consequences that are prescribed by the Bible here. So it makes sense that we're going to see some pretty contentious arguments. It makes sense that we're going to see, you know, scholars lining up to take pot shots at this book at the same time as we see scholars lining up to defend it with their lives. Um, it makes sense that everyone is going to be super, super convinced before they even get into the arena, before they even start dealing with the evidence. Um, and that makes it difficult to navigate the scholarship here because you are almost guaranteed every time you pick up a book that proposes to be about the Pentateuch or the New Testament or any part of the Bible, you are almost guaranteed to be getting one of those two perspectives, either a hardcore conservative Christian who is defending the traditional interpretation to their last breath and will admit of no arguments to the contrary, 
Or you will get the hardcore liberal who is convinced that the best thing that they can do for the world at large is to convince everyone that this book is nonsense and that they should stop paying attention to it and ruining their lives following its strictures. There's not a lot of room in between the two. And if you're waiting for me to say, I am a moderate and I'm going to try and fence it on this one, yeah, as a scholar, I am going to try and represent all sides as fairly as I possibly can. But I made my bed. Like, I am a Christian. I definitely hew towards the traditionalist understanding. Um, I do think that the liberal arguments that we're wrestling with here, in many cases, don't hold a lot of water. Um... But again, like I was just saying, a lot of people are coming into this discussion convinced of their position beforehand. Rationality isn't necessarily the thing deciding and driving people's perspectives on this one. Um, and that's kind of the main thing that I want to draw attention to today. I want to draw attention to the fact that both Christians and non-Christians, when they are talking about the Bible, are kind of coming in hot, coming in with their own perspectives, their own presuppositions, defending their own premises, regardless of what the, where, what the evidence says or takes them, that that's fairly reasonable, again, because of the extreme possibilities of, you know, damnation and salvation on, on the, the other hand, but also that, you know, there's not a lot of discussion actually happening in this discussion. Um, that at the end of the day, it's dogma and faith on both sides. The atheists refuse to accept any of the presuppositions that Christians will bring into their understanding of the Bible, and Christians likewise will not accept any of the presuppositions or premises ex are understood and accepted by the atheists. You will get out of this book what you put into this book. If you go in thinking it's nonsense, you will find all the nonsense you are looking for. In spades. Nonsense everywhere. And if you go into this book thinking you're going to find the capital T truth, you will find the capital T truth also in spades. Everywhere that you look. You will get what you look for when you read this book more than most. Um, and this is kind of true of many religious texts, but the Bible is in many ways unique for several reasons um it is at the end of the day a book that prescribes its whole religious outlook not on sort of logical or or metaphysical truths it is not basing it on some sort of like religious revelation so to speak it is rooted in history more than most religious texts um like if you read the Tao Te Ching the Tao Te Ching is almost completely like unmoored from history. It is entirely an effort to sort of wrestle with the world in the abstract. If you read the te the central tenets of Hinduism or Buddhism, if you read the Dhammapada, if you read the Upanishads, any of the stuff that I've been reading for, for the World Wisdom Traditions class, you will find something similar. A lot of sort of broad, generic, and abstract treatises of how one should go about one's life, how one should engage with the metaphysical world, what the gods did in some distant past, but it's not going to say, you know, in the, you know, 8th century, this particular king showed up and did this particular thing to this particular set of people. Um, and as a consequence, you should believe one thing or the other. Um, it's not going to say, hey, there, there was this major miraculous supernatural event that took place in history some, you know, 3,000 years ago that established the groundwork for an entire nation, an entire religion, and that those people have been living according to the strictures being handed down by that god who did that thing at that time in that place ever since. 
at the end of the day, the Bible is in fact betting really hard on some kind of historical reality, more than most of the texts that we have encountered. It is a historical reality and a historical interpretation that is out of sync with science, and because of its being out of sync with science, it is supposed to be all the more compelling. This is a book that proposes to describe events before they happen, and that derives its authority from the fact that those events did in fact transpire as they were prophesized. But now that we are living, you know, 2,500 years after the prophets, after the, after the exile, now that we're living 3,500 years after the miraculous events taking place in Egypt, it's real easy to look at this book and say, eh, it's just old, you know, people who are credulous and, and who are writing mythology and not knowing it. Um... This is kind of a big issue in the Bible. It's kind of the whole point of the Bible. <laughs> like, even if you project forward into the New Testament, there are so many writers in the New Testament who are arguing that, hey, you should believe in Jesus, not because he was, like, a really good guy and he, like, walked around for a while and, and did some major teachings. You should believe in him because he healed people miraculously and because he himself resurrected from the dead miraculously. Like, those are the central arguments of the Christian faith. And if, at the end of the day, you, like, poke a Christian, you're either going to get those two as the major defenses for the faith, or you are going to get something wishy-washy and waffly that is completely uncompelling. And you might very well argue at that point whether or not that person is, in fact, believing in the Christian faith. Jesus as wise teacher is a very popular perspective these days. But at the end of the day, that misses the point of what the New Testament is trying to tell you. The New Testament and the Old Testament are both recordings of miracles. They are both records of some sort of God who interacts in history. And if you do not accept that, these books are not going to be compelling. So with that in mind, I want to just stress right from the outset, because this is something that I kind of forgot to bring up in my hermeneutics discussion because I was so distracted by the nitty-gritty of all the language stuff, which I do in fact love, but I do need to emphasize right here and now at least one of the hermeneutical objectives I've got here is that I am not ruling out any supernatural anything until I have absolutely guaranteed evidence that it is not the case. And seeing as most of these supernatural occurrences happened so far in the past that we would be relying on eyewitness accounts to verify or reject them anyway, we're kind of at a standstill as far as that is concerned. I emphasize this because this is, at the end of the day, the central assumption that divides conservatives from liberal interpreters of the Bible. Christians will assume that these supernatural events not only are possible, but did happen, while scholars and liberals assume that those events are fabrications or mythological or incorrectly reported in some way, and will build their arguments from there. Again, I am not going to take as conservative as traditional a stance as most Christians in analyzing this text. I am open to the possibility of supernatural things happening, and when they are recorded in this book, I am going to take them at face value, not try to explain them away, not try to, you know, outright reject them on the grounds of how much science has taught me. Science has taught me that weird stuff happens, stuff that is fairly unpredictable. Like, I, in my everyday experience, see people win lotteries, see people struck by lightning, have reports of things that science doesn't necessarily explain. And I'm okay with that. 
Um, I do not necessarily require some scientific explanation to do that, and moreover, when I ask science questions, I find that many of those questions are fairly unfulfilling, especially as a philosopher. You can't ask a scientist, what is the good life? Because a scientist might tell you all sorts of facts and figures about serotonin or happiness or psychological conditions. They might be able to give you all sorts of advice about how to eat well or have a nutritious diet that will help your body to grow. Um, they might even tell you about, like, how various income levels affect one's reported happiness, and so on and so forth. But they can't tell you the how and the why of it all. Um, science looks at effects, science looks at behaviors, science looks at data. Um, and at the end of the day, that data can only do so much when you're asking questions like, where did the world come from? Was there some major event in history that radically transpired and changed the way everybody understood the world? Could a supernatural being interfere in human affairs? These are questions that science can't necessarily answer. The assumptions of science are things are the way that they have always been. Laws are unbreakable. Um, as Hume likes to put it, the sun will rise tomorrow because the sun has risen every day in the past. The Bible specifically reports there was one day where the sun got slowed down, where supernaturally God caused the sun to halt in its path in order to let this battle transpire and in order to ensure the victory of the Israelites. Science looks at that and says, no, that's not possible. Why? Because that's not how the world works. If a Christian responds, but that's how God works, science says, then God doesn't fit into our system. That's as bad as good methodical science can actually be. Like, as Stephen Hawking uh, used to put it, um, we no longer need a God to explain the origins of the universe. But he didn't go so far as to say that science has therefore ruled the being out. Science can't rule the being out. He operates according to rules that science does not observe. If a Christian would argue that God is, by definition, an unobservable being, then science must necessarily respond, then there is nothing we can do to observe him. There is no evidence for his existence besides, as we see reported in these texts, obviously, or obvious miracles that transgress the rules of science. When the world behaves in a way that it is not supposed to, that is taken as evidence of supernatural involvement, according to Christians and Jews, but supernatural involvement is not possible, according to scientists. Hence the confrontation, hence the disagreement, hence the discussion. But again, my stance here is that I have a lot of experience with stuff that science doesn't presume to understand, and that sometimes these biblical accounts or mythological accounts actually explain things that science has a kind of a gap in its understanding for. So we are going to read this at face value. We are going to take the supernatural stuff as supernatural. We are not going to seek out a way of ruling it out. You could argue that this is a pretty literary approach. I'm cool with that. I could definitely argue that I am biased and that I am coming at this because I am a Christian and I already believe in this stuff. Yep, that's legitimate too. All of those takes are definitely valid here. So if you are a liberal atheist scholar and you're like, darn it, Professor Kozlowski, I expected better of you. Sorry, folks. That's not how it's going to go on this one. My hermeneutic is going to be to take this Bible, like I said last time, at what it's trying to tell me, if it is trying to tell me, and it does, that there are supernatural events interrupting the scientific course of reality, then I'm going to accept that. 
Um, I'm not going to assume that these people are fools. I'm not going to assume that they are all, you know, gullible. I'm not going to assume that they are wrong. I'm going to try to understand them first, and then we can rule, you know, make rulings and decisions about that stuff afterwards. Although, in fairness, we are, in fact, going to be confronting a lot of that stuff here now today, because as you know, and as most of us are probably aware, I've already read this book, I already know what's coming, I already have a pretty good idea of what we're going to be getting into on this one. Um, with that in mind, there is one last thing I want to talk about before we kind of dive into the actual questions here. Um, specifically, I want to talk sources a bit. Um, obviously, last time, like, for most of this lecture series, we're going to actually be reading the Bible. And like I said last time, I'm going to be focusing primarily on the King James Version because I just like it. What are you going to do? Um, for this discussion, though, I am pulling from a variety of other sources. Um... And I will confess, right here at the outset, I am leaning towards the conservative ones on this one. Um, like, I have not actually read Wellhausen's treatise on JEDP, nor have I read any, uh, or I haven't read recently any scholarship that is particularly engaged in defending the JEDP hypothesis, um, which we'll talk about that in a moment. If you don't know what I'm talking about, it's going to become super relevant in a moment. Um, most of the scholarly works that I am familiar with are definitely written from the evangelical Christian standpoint, because that's where I went to seminary. Um, and again, like, it is only one side of the discussion. You could definitely argue, hey, um, you're missing an entire, you know, series of arguments that, like, liberal scholars are presenting to defend their positions. Um, that's true to some degree, but again, the assumptions are kind of what's making the big distinction here. Like, as far as I can tell, there is no archaeological, no scientific, no scholarly, no textual evidence that, like, irrefutably proves the bankruptness of the Bible. If there was, presumably Christians would be spending a lot of time arguing about it and defending it, because that's what they're doing with all of the arguments that these other scholars are presenting. Um, so, one way or the other, whether you read one side, both sides, or, or otherwise, as long as you are engaged in the scholarship, you will hear. Like, it will trickle down to you what the major arguments are. Christians do not ignore the arguments of their contemporaries. Like, they are dead set on refuting them in order to engage with the evangelical mission that they have been charged with. They do not just quietly, you know, like, stop paying attention to writers who refute them for one reason or another. Um, and as a consequence, I feel pretty comfortable sticking with the Christian scholarship on this one, because I have a really good idea of the landscape of a lot of the arguments presented against Christianity, because Christianity will present defenses, even if they are fairly shoddy and ill-made at times. Um, I'm not sure I'll get that from the atheist scholars, though. Like, most of the Christian scholars have responded to atheist scholars by saying, you know, hey, what about X, Y, and Z? What about this refutation? What about this Christian defender who, you know, made a, like, complete argument against the whole JEDP hypothesis? Where's your response to them? But here's the rub. Most atheist scholars, most liberal scholars, most people engaged in this interpretive tradition don't necessarily engage with the conservative scholarship because they consider it un or not worth their time. It is not scholarship at all to them. Um, so while conservatives are playing this complicated defensive game where they are attempting to, like, shoot down atheist scholarship at every turn, atheist scholarship feels no obligation to do the same to Christians. 
So most of the atheist scholars that have been engaged with are, for the most part, these big academic treatises that pres that either present or build upon a pre-existing theory without actually addressing the objections of what they consider to be bit players like Leeson Archer or D.A. Carson or um, Christian scholars who are, in fact, starting from the position that, hey, supernatural events can happen. Science isn't necessarily the sole authority here. Um, we are going to take the Bible at face value. So I feel pretty comfortable knowing the con conservative scholarship. Um, and, you know, if you have a book that you find to be a really, like, thoughtful engagement with Christian scholarship that does, in fact, present the atheist position in a way that is more fair, more comprehensive than I am doing here, feel free to shoot it my way. Um, but be warned, it's more complicated than that. Like, to give you an example, one of the atheist scholarship discussions that I have actually been fairly seriously engaged with when confronting the text um, is I, I spent like an entire summer doing doing the historical Jesus research, um, where if you're not familiar, the historical Jesus discussion is basically like a really contentious debate of much the same way as we're going to be talking about for the Old Testament here. Um, but it is specifically about, okay, so who was Jesus anyway? Um, like the assumption on the grounds of most of the historical Jesus scholarship is you know, the Bible presents him as this supernatural saintly figure who, like, performs miracles and comes back from the dead. Um, he is divine in biblical presentation. So who is the actual person? Like, assuming that there was an actual person, and some of the historical Jesus people, like, don't. Um, assuming that there was an actual person, what was he like? Why, why, let's separate the myth from the man in some respect. Um, so you can look at something like uh, Reza Aslan's Zealot or... As is often the case in these situations, there's like a five views of the historical Jesus book out there. What it basically comes down to is there's all of these people on one side saying that this guy was not who the Bible says he was. And there are all these people on the other side that say, actually, the Bible is totally defensible. This is what we uh, take away. But they, again, don't spend a whole lot of time talking to each other. At the end of the day, it is about presuppositions. Could he perform miracles or couldn't he? Um, could he, you know, come back from the dead or couldn't he? Like, apologists can absolutely talk until they're blue in the face talking about the possibility of resurrection or the various textual defenses or the historical evidences that seem to justify the, the you know, wild thing that happened at the in the first century AD. Um, but for most liberal scholars, this falls on deaf ears. People don't resurrect. That is the, you know, silver bullet argument that they have in mind, and that is the silver bullet that they came into this discussion with. Um, so again, while conservative Christians, traditionalists, are bending over backwards to refute the arguments made by scholars, because it is on, the burden of proof is on them at the end of the day if they want to keep on evangelizing, at the end of the day, scholars especially atheist or liberal scholars do not feel the same need to respond to Christians. Like when somebody like Dawkins responds to Christian teaching with, you know, like God is a bully or the old Testament is nonsense or, you know, his quasi scientific accounts of, you know, why Christianity is like morally or spiritually bankrupt. Christians will absolutely spend all the time in the world proving to Dawkins that he is wrong, and Dawkins will just write another book with the same arguments and, and not bother, because he too is preaching to his choir, he is making money selling to people who already know his moves, whereas Christians are in fact trying to convince people who 
aren't yet Christians in a way that scientists don't feel obligated to. Scientists aren't evangelizing to Christians. Scientists are ignoring them for the most part. That seems to be the most successful strategy for dealing with them because rationality isn't what we're playing with here. But it isn't on either side if you look closely enough. So with that in mind, the conservative sources that I am using, the traditional sources that I am familiar with, and the ones that I'm bringing back to this discussion after not reading them since seminary, um, first and foremost, I do in fact have a copy of Gleason Archer's A Survey of the of Old Testament Introduction, which, God bless it, like, I bought it before I went to seminary at the recommendation of a, a trusted pastor friend of mine, and it got me through seminary, and it is probably still the best source that I know of for this Old Testament introduction stuff. Um, Archer is a very conscientious refuter of liberal theology in a survey of Old Testament introduction. Um, he is basically like cobbling together the thoughts of many writers before his time. Um, he is a historian of this scholarship as much as he is presenting his own ideas. It is just a masterpiece. Like there's a reason why it's still in print and why people still like take it seriously. Um, the more recent text that I use is, uh, Longman and Dillard's, uh, introduction to the old Testament. Uh, that was my textbook when I was in seminary for the one class that I spent on Old Testament introduction. Um, it's super convenient, especially because it has a companion volume by Carson and Moo for the New Testament. So, you know, between the two of them, you've got the whole Bible introduced. Um, it is also very comprehensive. It is a little bit more unapologetically conservative than Archer is, like where Archer does, in fact, weigh the, the merits of uh, liberal scholarship, like the Old Test or the introduction to Old Testament, Longman and Dillard, very much kind of like say, "Hey, Archer did that already, so we don't need to worry about it so much." Like they they, they sort of wave a hand over it, but but it's not a huge priority for them. Um, Again, if you were waiting to find out whether or not I've read Wellhausen's actual hypothesis, no. Um, in general, I try not to read 19th century scholarship because it makes me angry and grumpy. Um, like, Wellhausen might have had some merits, and I suspect that I'll be talking about quite a few of them here. Um, but I suspect that at this point they would be better represented in a 20th century scholar. This is not like a primary source thing where, you know, going back to the, the foundational text is the wisest move. Um, like today I would look at a 20th century scholar and, and try and, you know, glean what they, they've uh, taught in their work with the advantage of contemporary archaeological finds, with the advantage of, you know, contemporary textual analysis. Um, the trouble with that, though, is that I have read quite a bit of 20th century scholarship surrounding Wellhausen's hypothesis and the whole JEDP thing and arguing against the traditional authorship of Moses or, you know, the, the like, composition in the 15th century BCE, all that fun stuff. Um, and most of those scholars basically don't bother to defend their positions. Um, again, because that's not what they're engaged in. This, it is assumed in liberal scholarship that, JEDP is the best theory for grappling with the Pentateuch, um, that the documentary hypothesis is the only way that one can conscientiously approach the Bible and that any Christian who disagrees with them is at the end of the day doing it because of their faith reasons. Like, this is not purely me just picking scholarly fights or, or you know, doing the Wikipedia summary. Like, I have in fact read this scholarship. It does not bother to defend itself. It is an entrenched, assumed position. Um, so the, the 
questions, the criticisms that Archer is bringing up in something like a survey in Old Testament introduction, you can read plenty of books by atheist scholars after this book was written and they won't even deal with Archer. Like any questions that, that he raises are not fit to be dealt with. As is the case of much biblical scholarship, especially in the sciences, you build on what's already been said. Like, nobody feels the obligation to write, like, a complete understanding of biology outside of a biology textbook. Um, contemporary scholars writing about biology are basically going to take for granted what has come before and specifically posit, here is my new idea, my new discovery, here is my new research, here is this new study that I conducted and why it's relevant to, you know, the, the biological world at large, or here is this one particular point that I am going to be updating or refuting or rejecting in order to change scholarship going forward. Um, academia in both the sciences and in the business of, li of liberal scholarship especially, or liberal biblical scholarship, we need to specify, um, for liberal biblical scholarship, this is supposed to be progressive. Um, we already demonstrated that JEDP is the best hypothesis for dealing with the Bible. Moving on, here is a qualification on J, or, you know, here is Harold Bloom's ex extensive discussion of who J might have been. Um, but that's not going to question the JEDP hypothesis. It's not going to bring up the possibility that, hey, what if those, those major supernatural events actually happened? That's not part of the scientific process as far as they're concerned. Um, the last text that I'm going to be referring to is the ancient Near Eastern texts uh, relevant to the Old Testament. Um, Pritchard and Wren's huge book, um, like I do in fact have a copy of that one. I haven't read it cover to cover like I have Archer, um, or for that matter, uh, Longman and, and Pillard. Um, it is a reference text at the end of the day, um, but it is so good. Like it is basically just a source book for or English translations of ancient Babylonian, Egyptian, Hittite, Assyrian like texts that are relevant even in the most tenuous ways to the Old Testament. Um, it is a huge resource for sort of understanding the parallels between the Old Testament and their Babylonian forebears or like what they were wrestling with when they were actually in exile or what an actual Assyrian or Hittite treaty might have looked like. So when Abraham is engaged in one, why is that relevant? Um, or, you know, it is a major source of scholarship for like Egyptian law or or religious tenets so you can compare and contrast like the the genesis account or any number of genesis accounts like the story of joseph for example with what you find in like egyptian scholarship and corroborate things there um this is like an invaluable source for basically any, any seminarian, any pastor. Um, I believe it's included in the Logos software. In fact, I suspect that all of the books that I've just talked about are included in the Logos software. Um, so if you're wondering if your pastor has access to this stuff, they almost certainly do. Um, like these are basic foundational texts on par with something like uh, BDB, the, the sort of most uh, well-regarded English Hebrew lexicon or BDAG, the huge Koine Greek lexicon. Um, these are foundational texts. Everybody needs them in order to do biblical scholarship in the same way that you need a copy of the Bible in Greek and or the New Testament in Greek and the Old Testament in Hebrew. Um, so yeah, these three texts are standards in Christian circles, um, but not in liberal circles for the reasons that we talked about and that I don't want to beat that dead horse anymore. Um, 
So if you have questions, if I gloss over stuff, if I am like, hey, here is the, you know, five-minute version of this argument, but if you want more, go back to, you know, Archer. These are the books that I'm talking about. Survey of Old Testament Introduction, Introduction to the Old Testament by uh, Longman and, and Pillard, um, and then the Ancient Near Eastern Texts Related to the Old Testament by Pritchard and Wren. Um, that's what I'm going to be building my arguments off of here. So with that in mind, enough preface. Um... What I really want to do today is talk about the foundational stuff about the Old Testament, how it was written, why it was written, who wrote it, um, where did it come from, why do we believe it or why do we not believe it, does archaeological evidence back it up, all that fun stuff. Um, because like I said at the outset of this discussion, this is what my students are coming into my classroom with. Like, this is not some kind of theoretical, I want to cover all of my bases, engage in scholarly discussion stuff. Like, honestly, I suspect that of all of the lectures I'm about to present on the Pentateuch, this might very well be the most important for purely apologetic reasons. Um, like, if it comes down to convincing people who are unconvinced of the truth of Christianity, this is going to be the important one. Because when my students walk into my classroom and we start having conversations about the Old and New Testament... I am going to run into a bunch of fellow travelers, people who, you know, go to Sunday school or believe in the Bible, even if tentatively, um, who know basically what I'm talking about, but don't haven't necessarily read it like in the original text for whatever reason. Um, I'm also going to run into people who are kind of like, eh, why do we have to talk about this religion stuff in the first place? And I will inevitably run into the one or two extremely determined atheists who are convinced that I am full of shit and that everything that I'm saying at the front of my classroom is nonsense um like every semester like clockwork i get at least one of those um especially at certain schools um what i want to do is address those concerns like when i'm in my classroom those are the first concerns that i address like i want to talk about why do you not believe in this text why are you not taking this seriously insofar as i can because especially those like one atheist student will inevitably come in guns blazing not interested in any of the answers that i have and will basically turn the class into like a uh waldorf and stantler like heckling uh, competition if they are determined enough and if I give them the opportunity to do so. They are not interested in answers in the same way that uh, liberal academic scholarship is not interested in Archer's refutations. And this is not me, like, just trying to shoot down atheists. Like, I realize, you know, I'm 40 minutes into this lecture already and it probably sounds as though I am just spewing the same dogma that everybody else is. No, I want to emphasize, like, there isn't an argument to be made in many of these cases. Um, this is not me trying to shoot down like ac good academic scholarship. This is me very much emphasizing that I am looking for that academic scholarship and not finding it. Um, I am going to try and present a pretty thorough and like the best version of an argument against the Old Testament that I possibly can in this lecture. Um, what I'm going to emphasize is that for many of you, I'm not going to present an adequate response to those things, even though for me, my response will be adequate. What I want to emphasize is that none of us are playing with rationality here. Um, and like, I say that knowing full well that I'm not, I say that knowing full well that 90% of the discussions I've had with atheists are also not operating on rational grounds. Um, they just aren't like there is nothing more inherently rational about dogmatic atheism than there is about dogmatic Christianity. There just isn't like 
a well-reasoned position will, at the end of the day, involve reasoning from one or the other premise. Either supernatural things are possible or they are not. And that's where you're going to end up at. Like, either the Bible is true or it's not. Because it is based in supernatural stuff or because it is based in supernatural stuff. Like, the reasoning looks the same in either case. Um, so I want to emphasize, if you are here to learn about the Old Testament, if you are open to what I've got to say, I'm going to try and present it as well as I can. But if you are dead set against it, if you, like, bring this up in a conversation with a staunchly atheist or, for that matter, staunchly Christian relative or something, and you start getting major pushback, that's what I'm talking about here. It's not going to matter to 60% of the people who are listening to this stuff, who are actually interested in this stuff. If you are a Christian, you're not going to be any more interested in JEDP than I am. In fact, you're going to be less interested than I am. And if you are an atheist, you are going to be less interested in any of the arguments against JEDP that I have. Um, so again, enough distraction, enough summary here. Like, just let it, let the record show... This is going to be an extremely rational discussion of an extremely irrational conversation. And that it, because it is rational, it is not going to have a whole heck of a lot to do with, you know, whether or not a person believes in the Old Testament or not. You're not going to be able to successfully convince people. At least I haven't in my classroom. Um, so first and foremost, let's deal with the question that most of my students are going to come in with if they are in fact going to argue against the Bible. It is by far the single most commonly held objection to biblical authority, biblical truth, um, than any of the others I've encountered. And that is, the book is old, and therefore something must have gone wrong. In 3,500 years since the Pentateuch was written, if in fact we are right about Moses writing the Pentateuch, Somebody must have, like, bobbled the ball at some point. Somebody must have fumbled. Somebody must have screwed up the transmission, and something must have crept in or been put there that wasn't there originally, and that God's message, if such a thing could be said to exist, has been distorted after 3,500 years of transmission. Um, like I said, this is the number one objection that people come to me with. Like they come into my classroom. They, it is our first day discussing the Bible, almost guaranteed. I will get the objection, but how do we know it's the real thing? Didn't somebody screw up the textual transmission? How do we know that this book is the book that we are supposed to have in our hands? How do we know that this is the one that Moses wrote? This is the one the Hebrews believed something must've gotten distorted along the way. And this is a super complicated question. Like, what I want to emphasize is that the question actually has a very important polemical purpose for the student who is presenting it. Um, that polemical purpose is, I don't have to read this book. Like, again, I don't want to make it sound like I am some, you know, Christian who is interested in bashing all liberals, all atheists. Or, and I am definitely not going to, like, lean on the argument that Satan is making them do this. Like, as much as that is in the back of my mind when I'm having these discussions, at the end of the day, I want to stress that's not the reason why they're doing it. This is rational behavior for unbelievers. Um, like, this is something that a lot of Christians miss, I think. Um, they usually jump to the Satan is making them do things argument. Like, Dawkins is the pawn of Satan. No, he's not. Or if he is, we're certainly not in a position to be judging. Remember, like, God told us not to do that? Um, this is rational behavior for people who are trying to not take the Bible seriously. 
Why are they not taking the Bible seriously? Not necessarily because Satan is making them do it. Come on, don't be like that. But because they want to have sex and they want to be able to lie and they want to be able to do all of the things the Bible says you specifically can't do because those are fun things to do. Like, they make your life easier or apparently easier, like the centuries of philosophy of, you know, arguing to the contrary aside. Um, people want to have sex before the marriage, and the Bible is very determined to say that they can't. People want to, you know, like, have actual homosexual relationships, and the Bible is pretty adamantly saying that that's not true. People want to have homosexual friends, and the Bible makes it really difficult to do that as well. Like, the Bible is a really tough thing to believe in if you're being completely honest with yourself. Like, I say this as a Christian. Much as Jesus has his, you know, my yoke is easy and my burden is light thing, sure, that is true. Because, you know, freedom from sin and, and like, freedom from temptation and looking forward to the end of the world, sure. Like, there's tons of reasons that that, that, that statement is true. But if you are not already introduced into the benefits of being a Christian... If you are looking instead at the things that make life worth living outside of the Christian context, the Bible has a pretty dim view and a pretty low view of a lot of those things and ends up subordinating most of them to a fairly rigorous ethic handed down by Jesus that says things like, you're not allowed to get a divorce. Maybe you should work out your problems. Or you should actually be really nice to the people who screw you over because they are people too and God loves them. Or actually, if somebody is going to steal something from you, you should give them something extra because, you know, what do you care? You are living for the end of days. Um, this is not how we are wired. It is very much against the way that we are wired. We are selfish beings. We are designed to be selfish beings. Whether it is sin that is doing this or Darwinian, like, survival of the fittest programming, either way, we are inclined to think of ourselves first. The Bible tells us not to do that. People are resistant to this. It is a rational response to the Bible to want to dismiss it as nonsense. Um... Like, yes, we can talk about sin. I'm not denying that. Sure. What I want to emphasize is this question. Um, how can this be the same book that God, presuming that he exists, handed down is a really important, polemical, and really useful counter-argument to the Bible's teaching. It basically is poisoning the well. It is saying, I don't have to read this book, I don't have to pay attention to what it says, because this book isn't even what it proposes to be. And that's why it is almost certainly the first thing that comes up in my students' mind. Because like most teenagers, they have figured out the shortcuts and the hacks to a lot of going through life. In the same way that they find that they don't need to be terribly politically engaged because, again, Democrats and Republicans are all like crazy people talking about angry stuff and they, they, none of them are actually rational, and so we can successfully and comfortably dismiss all sides of the debate. Likewise, I can successfully dismiss the Bible because it is not coming from a place of actual rational, you know, truth. It is, at the end of the day, a corrupted, broken text and therefore not worth my time to read or pay attention to see also Christian truth and Christian church and the whole Christian thing. So again, I respect my students when they come into this, and you should as well. Like, if you were a legit Christian trying to evangelize to people and you were getting this question, do not dismiss it. It is a good question. It is an important question. 
It isn't necessarily going to be the question that changes their mind. Like, I'm not going to deny that. And maybe it isn't worth your time to address it, especially if it keeps coming up or if somebody, like, is really not hearing the refutations that you have to offer. Again, because it's a really comforting question. Um, but at the same time, like, as a scholar, I want to address it. Because the fact of the matter is, despite the fact that it is a really good question and avoiding the sort of taking accountability for your salvation as far as the Bible is concerned issue, it is also a question with a pretty definitive answer that kind of refutes the question. So let's start with the nitty-gritty, because there are essentially, like, two parts to the question, how do I trust that this Bible is what it says it is? Like, where did this Bible come from? Haven't 3,000 years, etc., corrupted the original text? Like, how do we know that the Bible we have now is the same Bible that, like, Moses wrote 3,500 years ago? Um, there's essentially two questions here. First, we need to talk about authorship and provenance. Where did it come from? What is the, in fact, time and place of the Old Testament of the Pentateuch specifically? Um, so with that in mind, we kind of have two major answers here. Um, again, because we've got this two sides of the debate. Traditional Christians will argue Moses wrote this. Um, the entire Pentateuch, start to finish, Genesis to Deuteronomy, was written by Capital M, Moses, the first major, major prophet of the Jewish faith, the guy who is responsible for the Ten Commandments, the guy who apparently talked personally with God on Mount Sinai. Why do we know this? Because the Bible says this. Don't ask about the tautologies. It makes us uncomfortable. Um, at the end of the day, the typical Christian answer is Moses wrote this text. And we know this because Moses says that Moses wrote this text. Um, and in fact, Moses is the central figure of this text. He is the prophet who gets these specific instructions from God that he then records in the books of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Um, he is the guy who is, like, right there at ground zero while the plagues are going down. Um, he records all of this. These are the books. This, these are the scriptures. These will be carried for 3,500 years into the present. By contrast to this, liberal scholarship has argued fairly effectively and are pretty entrenched in their perspective at this point that actually the bible or the pentateuch specifically the torah um, has been written by a variety of authors it is a compilation um specifically it is written by or the most popular version of this and like or at least the most basic version of this i know it's been further complicated uh, is that there are four authors j e d and p um this kind of kicks off in the 18th century. There is a French scholar. Uh, I forget his name, but Archer talks about him extensively. Again, if you want the, the real version of this argument, go see Archer. Um, this guy in the 18th century apparently noticed that, hey, there's a problem with Genesis 1 and 2. Um, and this is like a legit actual problem. We're going to confront this in our next discussion. Um, but Genesis 1 reports one version of the creation of the world in which God creates the world in seven days. He does it in a very specific order. It's very poetic. It's always good after he does the thing. Um, he, like, has this very distinct pattern of, like, deciding what is going to be and then speaking it into being. So it's like, let there be light, and bam, there's light, because there's going to be light. And and then God looks at it, and he's like, wow, that's that's some pretty good light there. I'm so happy with that. It is good. And then we move on to day two. Um, and then in Genesis 2, we get a completely different sort of creation story. Specifically, like, we made Adam, and then Adam's a little unhappy, and he's not good anymore, so we're gonna, like, fix things. 
specifically by like bringing the animals to check on him first and then you know decide which one of them is going to be his best helper and then when that doesn't work we're going to make eve um these two stories are in many ways out of sync with one another uh the first gospel or the first creation narrative the first in genesis one reports that like god made the animals and then he made adam male and female he created them um this suggests that one the animals were created first and two adam and eve were created simultaneously whereas in genesis 2 the animals are created after adam like or at least it's strongly implied that they are created after adam again i don't want to get into the nitty-gritty we're going to talk about it more next week um and then eve is definitely created after adam so it's not like a simultaneous thing both of these are able to fit into the genesis 1 story these are compatible if stretched but the sort of natural conclusion the sort of logical assumed like again if we get into our hermeneutic perspective the literary interpretation of these two stories is that they aren't quite fitting together like hand in glove there's friction here um so this 18th century french scholar looks at these two texts and says these were written by two different people which is, again, a fairly reasonable conclusion to come to. Like, as a scholar of Babylonian literature, as, you know, somebody who's dealing with mythology on a regular basis, I would look at these two texts and my first response would be, yeah, clearly we're combining two different traditions here. Like, this is just like when Apollodorus will stop in the middle of the Heracles narrative to say, like, some people in Thebes say that Heracles did this, while other people in Corinth say that he did this instead. Like, this totally makes sense to me this seems like a very logical conclusion to come to I'm not saying it's the only way to to argue about this what i'm saying is this is a reasonable concern with especially genesis 1 and 2 the trouble is that we expand on this like this guy initially says okay we've got two different stories here um and these two different stories must have been originally written by two different authors his assumption is that we are dealing, that like, this is actually Moses who records it, but it is two different oral traditions recorded by Moses, which I think is a fairly sensible conclusion to come to. The trouble is this becomes systematized in the next hundred years. Like, 19th century scholarship and, and academics is messy. Like, we've talked about this on, on this lecture series before. Like, if, if you've listened to my discussion of Schopenhauer, if you've listened to my discussion of Freud, um, if you've listened to me rant about social Darwinism or Nietzsche at any point, 19th century scholarship is both extremely important because it is very much setting the stage for 20th century scholarship, but it is also making a lot of really bad, wild assumptions that kind of haunt contemporary scholarship to this day. And this is one of those. Based on this assumption that, oh, maybe Genesis 1 and 2 were written by different authors or have different oral traditions surrounding them, we get the Wellhausen hypothesis close to 100 years later and 100 years of, you know, various, like, edits and changes and, quote, discoveries and so on and so forth. Wellhausen is kind of the definitive version of this documentary hypothesis. What it basically comes down to is Wellhausen says there are not two but four authors of the Pentateuch. J, or the Jehovist, E, the Elohist, uh, D is the Deuteronomist, and P is the priests or the priestly caste, or they are occasionally futzed around with. It's complicated. Um, 
what it basically comes down to is that 18th century French scholar who was like, hey, Genesis 1 and 2 have a little bit of friction there, also noticed that Genesis 1 and 2 use different names for God. Um, at which point we need to take a little bit of a sidebar here. Um, the two names for God that he is discussing are Jehovah, or J, and Elohim, or E. Um, now, real quick, I am not a huge fan of using the term Jehovah or Yahweh or the word that is frequently used by Christians to denote God because it is, in fact, from the Hebrew and it is, in fact, like the famous tetragrammaton or four-letter name for God. Like, actually, a lot of the four-letter names for God are, are four letters. Um, but at any rate, like, Yahweh, Jehovah, however you want to phrase it, Jehovah is actually like a German mistranslation of the original Hebrew text. It's a whole thing. Don't want to get into it here. Um, this is the most sacred, the most important, the most potent name of God. Like, this is the name of God that God uses when he introduces himself to Moses in the burning bush. Like, that scene where God is, where Moses is like, I don't want to go to Egypt, and, like, I'm going to come up with a whole bunch of excuses for why I don't have to go. And God's like, bring them on. I'm going to refute every one of them. And Moses is like, well, I don't know your name. Maybe if you tell me your name, then I can tell the Israelites. And God is like, I am that I am. And Moses is like, what? Yeah, um, that's the name that he's referring to. Like, liter transliterated, like, the, the Yahweh in the Hebrew is also the same set of consonants that are used to describe I am. Um, like, this is basically God saying, I am being itself. Like, if we want to get super philosophical about it. Um, which is where we're going to get, like, tons of philosophical traditions, like Thomas Aquinas saying that, like, God is being personified, or, like, reality personified. It's a whole thing, don't want to get too deep into it. Um... The 18th century French scholar or his successors noticed that Genesis 1 prefers one of these names to the other one. Namely, Genesis 1 is Yahweh and Genesis 2 is Elohim, or I might have gotten them confused. Um, it's been a while since I've actually dug around in the Hebrew. I was not planning to go on this particular tangent. Um, but nonetheless, this is the way that, can, that Wellhausen and company decided to ultimately divide the entire Pentateuch. So, like, there's one writer who only ever uses the name Yahweh or Jehovah. There is one writer who only ever uses the name Elohim. Now, I'm not going to talk about the actual names of God anymore, because, again, Yahweh is a super sacred name in Jewish tradition. Jehovah is the German bastardization of that super sacred name. So when I talk about it, I'm just going to use, like, all caps, LORD, the same way that the King James does, God bless him. Um, I'm also going to refer to Jay from here on out as the person who uses the name Yahweh, like, totally. Because, again, I don't want to offend my Jewish audiences, and I've already said it way more than I'm comfortable with in this lecture. Um, this is, again, super sacred. In Jewish traditions, you do not take the Lord's name in vain. Later traditions, especially, like, the same guys who, you know, Jesus calls Pharisees, are emphasizing that, like... That name of God is so sacred that we should just never, ever say it. Um, which is why in the, the biblical texts, like the, the diacritical marks that emphasize the vowels actually point to it as the same ones for, for Adonai, which is where we get the German bastardization. It's a whole thing. Um, but anyway, what I want to stress is I'm not going to be saying Yahweh anymore. It makes me uncomfortable. It makes my Jewish audience uncomfortable. So, yeah. We got Jay who uses that name. We got E, who uses the name Elohim. 
And as a consequence, the entire Pentateuch is divided up now between the guys, or every time that it uses J, or the J name for God, it is the J author who is writing, and every time it uses the E name for God, it is the E author who is writing. And this yields some pretty wacky divisions in some cases. Like, there are individual verses that are broken up by Wellhausen um, in the sort of, like, parceling out of who wrote which passage. Um, it gets super messy. And it is not quite as clear-cut in many of the passages that we point to, but it does help to explain things like, why did we bring up, you know, Abraham trying to, like, convince some authority figure that his wife is not his wife, but actually his sister, not once but twice in Genesis. Oh, because one of those is a J story, and one of those is an E story, and then whoever the editor is who, like, stuck them together didn't realize that he was duplicating it, because, you know, editors are dumb, I guess. Um... In addition to J and E, we also have D, the Deuteronomist. Um, Wellhausen and his predecessors noticed that Deuteronomy has a radically different tone um, than Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers. Uh, so they concluded that Deuteronomy was written by a completely different person than Moses, um, which is also backed up by the fact that, like, or rather a completely different person than J and E, I should say. Something which is also backed up by the fact that, like, even earlier scholars had noticed that Deuteronomy was of dubious mosaic authorship, if only because the very end of it is like, oh, and then Moses died. And it's like, well, Moses couldn't write that. He was dead. So obviously at least part of this text was written by Joshua or his successors or, or whatever. Um, and the fact that Deuteronomy does recapitulate whole sections of what has come before, as well as doing so in a rather distinct tone and, and approach, like where Genesis through Numbers is mostly just straight up third person omniscient narrative, Deuteronomy is presented as though speaking, as though it is a speech. And they concluded that, okay, so there's a different writer here. Um, adding to that, though, uh, at least one of those 19th century scholars said, hey, what if Deuteronomy is the, quote, book of the law that Josiah found in that part of, like, Second Kings where, like, apparently everybody had lost the book of the law for a while and then Josiah, like, tells his, his priest to go, like, clean out the temple because it's, like, turned into some kind of, like, giant closet that's just full of stuff at this point. Um, so they clean out the temple and they're like, hey, we found this really good-looking book here. Maybe it's important, and Josiah's like, oh my gosh, you found the book of the law! Um, 19th century scholars argued that that book that they found was Deuteronomy. And the book that they, quote, found is actually a book that, like, Josiah was secretly paying off the priest, and he's like, okay, so everybody's, like, disagreeing with my laws, so go write a totally fake new book of the law that was supposedly written by Moses, and just don't tell anyone that you wrote it, and then we'll just pass it off and, like, do our own laws and stuff. Um, in which case, we have a really definitive date for this. It was written during Josiah's reign in the 7th century BC. Um... But it is not mosaic, it is not nearly as ancient as either J or E. Um, it is a completely modern invention for purely, like, propagandistic political purposes. Um, it's a whole thing. And then P is the priests. Which, Wellhausen argues that, like, in addition to J and his understanding of, like, the, the mythology in Genesis and the original storytelling in Exodus and so on and so forth, and E doing much the same, we have, like, one guy, the editor, who is, like, interposing his own ideas also for propagandistic slash uh, political purposes, um, and he is P, the, the priestly guy. 
um, priestly guy is frequently interested in sort of like inventing new laws or, or creating new material to again sort of shape and change the way that uh, Hebrews abide by these rules. Like he is quietly retconning and redacting the text to make it update to whatever contemporary laws or, or, or strictures might be in place. Um, in short, he's updating it to suit modern audiences um, or modern political needs, I guess. What I want to emphasize is that Wellhausen see, sees all four of these as being crucial parts of the, the Pentateuch writing process. That the book that we have is not one book by one author, but rather a series of like various smaller books and writings that have kind of been clumsily cobbled together by indifferent editors, um, largely written by these two major storytelling mythologists, J and E, the Deuteronomist who, you know, wrote the book under uh, the book of Deuteronomy under Josiah's leadership and just sort of tacked it on at the end. And then P who's like sitting in there making changes as they see fit. And this is, reasonable like it's within the bounds of reasonable textual scholarship but it also kind of doesn't hold a lot of water like this is a long way away from that 18th century french critics scholarship that noticed hey genesis and one genesis one and genesis two have some friction there, there are some problems reconciling these two stories maybe they were written by two different writers it is a long way away from Wellhausen going through the entire Pentateuch and saying, actually, there's not two, but four different writers. And I can pinpoint sentence by sentence exactly where they all break down. And this guy only ever uses one name of God. And this guy uses only one other name, name of God. Like, much of the reason why Wellhausen is coming up with this is because he lacks the entire 20th century scholarship. Like, he doesn't have the Babylonian texts that we have that show us that actually Babylonian and Egyptian writers frequently bounce back and forth between names of God. Like, if you read any of the Egyptian hymns to various gods, you'll find multiple names scattered throughout them just normally. If you read the Babylonian Enuma Elish, you will find repeated passages all the time. Like, this is normal normal Semitic, normal ancient Near East storytelling conventions. This is typical of the form. It doesn't indicate some sort of compilation or, or cobbling together of multiple sources. We have no reason to believe that the reason why Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 are in friction with one another is because they are two distinct writers. And at the very least, even if we did, because there is friction there more than there is for many of the arguments that Wellhausen is claiming, we certainly don't have grounds to start, start cutting the text into pieces in an effort to sort of like reconcile all of these perceived problems, especially when many of them are conventions of the literature of the time. Like, you really want to make the Abraham story of, you know, Sarah being passed off as his sister written by two different writers because it's two different traditions because, you know, they're too close to, to be a coincidence but also too far away from each other to, you know, possibly, you know be explained by like one writer telling the story twice well look this is exactly what's happening in something like the enuma elish or something very close to it like when tiamat gives the book of destinies to to kingu her lieutenant it is very much framed as and then she you know it systematically lists the exact same list multiple times including the presentation of the tablet multiple times in different contexts that's essentially what's happening here the text is more different in these two passages than the Enuma Elish is, but we have precedent. 
Um, what I want to emphasize is that Wellhausen's arguments don't hold water, not from a 20th century perspective. The basic tenets, the basic understanding of these four writers and dividing the text in, in these nuanced ways, the assumption that we can only have like each writer using a distinct name of God, you know, and never using the other name of God, that's, that's a reach, honestly. Like, that's a pretty long reach. And in fact, there is more to say against this hypothesis than there is to say, uh, say for it, in my opinion. Like, again, I'm not going to get into the nitty-gritty details here. What I want to emphasize instead is the sort of broad scale. This is typical of 19th century scholarship. It is a nascent field. You know, Schleiermacher has just opened up the field of biblical scholarship to, like, serious criticism and, you know, examining these texts from a very critical perspective, one that doubts and suggests that the, the writers are not who they say they are, that the events did not occur the way that they said that they were. You know, we've got a whole bunch of people rushing into this field, and we don't yet have the system in place for determining textual criticism or authorial criticism. For we don't have archaeology so substantial as to be able to, like, place these books in these time periods. It is a very complicated process to try and determine these, these issues, and Wellhausen is rushing in before he, we've been given adequate evidence to justify his conclusions. Wellhausen is, in essence, making an upjumped but rather sophisticated hypothesis, a sort of grand experiment in criticism, so to speak. And these experiments are good. It helps us to understand, you know, future, like, texts and textual critical uh, traditions down the road. But it's also based on very little, in the same way that Freudian psychoanalysis is based on some pretty dodgy case studies and some pretty questionable behavior on the part of Freud himself and some conclusions that are entirely grounded in nothing. And yet, like Freud, Wellhausen has endured to this day. Like Freud, there are many scholars building on successive generations of Wellhausian scholarship without bothering to question the assumptions that, are, that were made originally. There, like Freud, we have a lot of people who just sort of take the, this perspective as a given and are building more onto it rather than questioning, challenging, or undermining what has come before. Unlike Freud, though, the arguments that are made against Wellhausen are usually coming from Christians. And therefore, as a consequence, the scientific community is inclined to think that these Christians are just whiny traditionalists who are not engaged in the scientific process. In the same way that Christians are inclined to think that the Wellhausian hypothesis doesn't have a single grain of rational thought behind it. What I want to stress is that original French dude had made a legitimate like, observation and objection. Genesis 1 and 2 has have some problems, and again, as a student trained in mythology, my first reaction is, oh, these are two different oral traditions. That doesn't mean that they're incompatible, that doesn't mean that they're necessarily written by two different people. What it does mean is that there is a problem that Christians have not sufficiently addressed here. But Wellhausen is going too far the other direction. He is instead making a scientific treatise or a pseudoscientific treatise out of some conjecture, some bad calls, and a distinct lack of scholarship to refute him. Wellhausen's hypothesis persists to this day because scholars are taught it. 
in their basic theology classes, in their Old Testament criticism classes, everywhere that, that this stuff is being taught. And since the people who are largely responsible for objecting to it are doing so on bad faith grounds as far as they're concerned, i.e. because Christians believe that Moses wrote it and refused to listen to, quote, reason, they are also unwilling to listen to reason here. So, at the end of the day, we are faced with, again, two binary stories of the authorship of this text. On the one hand, we have the Christians insisting that it is Moses and only Moses who wrote it, even though it seems pretty obvious that Genesis, at the very least, is cobbled together from some, you know, oral traditions, um, or at the very least that Moses is, like, working with a secondhand account, even if it is God who's dictating it to him. Um, this is something that is not addressed in the text of Genesis, and most uh, conservative scholars will go so far as to say, like, yeah, he's getting, like, the first-hand account from God, but that doesn't necessarily, you know, conform to the way that this text is presented. It's complicated. We'll talk about that when we get into Genesis next week. Um, for now, what I want to emphasize is that there is, in fact, a reasonable objection to complete mosaic authorship across the board. Namely, that there are oral traditions that seem to be pulled from here, or there are different variations of the story that are being told here, um, or just the very simple, you know, argument that, like, Moses wasn't there for Genesis, where is he getting his information, why doesn't it tell us this, that's enough for me. But to go so far as to say we can pinpoint where this writer stops and this writer picks up, that's absurd. Like... We have tons of scholars working on trying to understand, like, the Iliad, the Odyssey, and Homeric authorship, and trying to, you know, stitch back together the, the epic cycle that, that Homer is pulling from, and we got nothing. We got zero. Like, we have a couple of descriptions summarized in, in other writers, and we've got, like, Apollodorus's take on, on the same, and that's the best we have. To try and break down the Iliad, even if we are going to treat it in this sort of like quasi-documentary fashion, trying to like pick it apart and saying, actually, this is from, you know, the little Iliad, or actually, this is from the fall of Troy. Um, some people are trying to do that, but it is very tentative. The bulk of scholars are very much against this. Um, like, this is a new field that has a lot of questions surrounding it, and as much as, like, their arguments that there is an oral tradition that Homer is pulling from are valid, nobody is saying that, like, Homer is actually five different writers with five different perspectives, and every time that, like, we he uses this epithet, it's this writer, but every time he uses this epithet, it's this... Like, nobody is doing that, even though the argument would be just as strong as it is for Wellhausen in many of these cases. So, no. Like, I don't think Wellhausen holds water. I do think that there is some sort of more moderate approach to, you know, mosaic authorship, something that can, in fact, split the difference between Moses and only Moses wrote this and God was sitting over his shoulder so everything is perfect. And on the other hand, there is four different writers. Here's how they are all laid out. I think that there probably was an oral tradition involved, especially in the composition of Genesis. Like, I, I don't see... that. That's how so many other mythologies work. It would be hard for me to not think of it that way. Um, do I think that those oral traditions are necessarily flawed or broken or, or you know, untrue in some way? No, not necessarily. Um, I don't think Moses necessarily had a problem with incorporating multiple different origin stories for the creation of the universe into his Genesis account. 
I'm not convinced by, you know, future scholars, even including someone like Paul, saying that, no, Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 are both absolutely historically accurate and my entire theological system is based on it. Um, I'm not sure where I stand is where it comes down to. I am open to the possibility of there being an oral tradition. I am open to the possibility of Moses getting the word from God himself. I am open to the possibility that Moses wrote it, it under the mysterious effects of inspiration. I am open to the possibility that Moses didn't write this and that, in fact, like, he's got an amanuensis or, you know, it wasn't even written in Moses' day. I am open to these possibilities. To me, I don't see strong enough evidence to dogmatically claim anything here. We just don't know. We have been given this text through the canon of Old Testament scholarship, through the, the canon of Hebrew scholarship. We've been told that this is the most authoritative text that we have for what happened from Genesis through the Exodus onto the invasion of uh, Judea by the Hebrews. And I'm willing to leave it at that. Like, since I don't have anything better, I am willing to take the authority of this text. And this is the way that I usually respond to my students as well. Okay, I will respond to them. I will grant that we're not entirely sure what the origins are here. Here is all of this scholarship, all of these people who say that Moses wrote it, all these people who say that Moses didn't write it, the fact that they're completely irreconcilable, the fact that neither of them are listening to the other, the fact that neither of them are going to respond to the other's objections, the fact that nobody is looking for some moderate position between the two. My position isn't necessarily a moderate one, it is a skeptical one. I do not think that the belief in the mosaic authorship of Genesis 1 and 2 is necessary for salvation, in short. Do I think that these are important stories? Yes. Do I think that the biblical writers, including New Testament writers, who we are supposed to take at face value, think that these are historical sources? Absolutely. Like, it's pretty obvious. Do I think that they could be mistaken about the historical authorship? Possibly. What I do know is that, again, this is the best source we have. It has capital A authority, even if it doesn't have capital I inerrancy in the sense that the Chicago Statement of Inerrancy claims. So, from a transmission standpoint, you can say, yes, we don't know where the Old Testament came from. But the essential premise that I am refuting for my students is that that matters. That this is a claim that therefore justifies not studying the Old Testament. No. The Old Testament remains authoritative. And it remains authoritative regardless of the questions of its authorship. Regardless of the fact that we do not have anything approaching academic proof for the authorship and provenance. The questions we should be asking are not, you know, did Moses write this? Where did Genesis come from? Is there an oral tradition? How do we put the pieces together? Or how do we not put the pieces together? How do we take them apart in Wellhausen's case? The question we should be asking is, okay, so what better do you have? Now, some people will answer, well, we have the scientific explanation for the history of the universe, which in many cases will be fine for them. Now, admittedly, there's a lot of problems with the scientific explanation of the universe, which I'm not going to be going into detail here. Maybe some of them will show up next week. But at the very least, I look at that and I say it explains some things, but not all things. If we are, in fact, going to, you know, reckon with Christianity, whether you are an atheist or a Christian, 
if the burden of proof lies on you to convince the other person that you are right, a Christian is not going to be able to convince atheists of the truth of the gospel, whether or not Moses wrote the, you know, Pentateuch in the same way that an atheist is not going to be able to uh, convince a Christian of the truth of evolution and the long version of the creation of, or the long version of the generation of the universe from the Big Bang by arguing that Moses didn't write the Pentateuch. These arguments are essentially worthless in the discussion. Um, don't get me wrong, it's fascinating to study this stuff. Yes, we should be inv investigating these questions and saying that they're worthless is an exaggeration. Yes, some people are going to be looking at this stuff and, you know, making decisions accordingly. But at the end of the day, Christians are not going to be swayed because you said Moses is wrong because science is right in the same way that scientists are not going to be swayed by Christians responding science is wrong because Moses is right. The question mark is not going away. And for us to assert mosaic authorship without adequate proof is as ridiculous as asserting this Wellhausian JEDP argument without adequate proof. We are both working from inadequate proof here. We are both trying to speculate on the origins of this text according to traditions that did not, you know, carefully document themselves, that did not stretch so far back as the 15th century BCE, we cannot in fact trace the entire history to that point. Insofar as my students say that, they are correct. But, this is still the best we have. No scientist can produce some authoritative historical document that refutes what the Old Testament says any more than some Christian can come up with some authenticated, you know, totally verifiable historical document, biblical or otherwise, that refutes what scientists say. The question mark remains. And if I were to go so far as to speculate on theological grounds, I would argue that God probably wants that to be the case. You know, maybe this is an example of God expecting us to rely on faith whether we want to or not so yeah my moderate position is a skeptical position my moderate position says we do not know enough either to throw out the old testament or to regard it as mosaically written its authority as the central foundational text of the christian faith cannot be challenged because there is not enough evidence, not enough archaeology, not enough data about that particular era of the past to either overturn or confirm it. With that in mind, if you are a believing Christian, you will continue to believe, in spite of the lack of evidence. And if you are not a believing Christian, this is not going to be the deciding factor for you. You must look for arguments elsewhere. So does that mean that my students are correct? No. In fact, that brings us to the second part point that we need to deal with here. So now that we've talked about our authorship issue, let's talk about the transmission issue. And this is where things get much more concrete. It's, it may very well be true that we cannot confirm with some sort of scientific or academic authority that Moses wrote the Bible or that the Bible was specifically written in the 15th century BCE, or maybe it was written afterwards as a compilation or summary or history. I don't know. These are questions that ultimately must be left unanswered, and I'm not sure faith necessitates that we regard them as resolved. Um, 
instead I want to look at the way that it got from point A to point B. Because at the end of the day, when my students say, we're not sure we got the right text, what I am saying by saying, you know, I don't know whether Moses wrote this, but it remains the only authority we have. What I am positing is this text remains authoritative regardless of the historical circumstances surrounding it. It remains the foundational text, and unless you can disprove it, I can accept this text and its authority on an article of faith, despite the fact that I do not need this this assertion that this book was written by Moses as a part of my faith. I can take the authority of the Old Testament in the same way that I take it, take the authority of the New Testament and say that, yes, yeah, science tells me that Jesus couldn't possibly have resurrected, but he did anyway. That's how miracles work. It can be faith that grounds my faith in this Christian faith. It can be faith that motivates my conviction in the biblical truth. Now, if you want to get down to rational brass tacks, if you want to hold me accountable, how do you put faith in this in this Bible? Yes, you can come at it from the purely irrational historical perspective. This is the book that I was taught was true, and therefore I've always believed it because as a kid I was very, you know, impressionable. Or you can take it from a more rational standpoint. I have questioned my faith. I'm not a fool. Um... I have not been the sort of dogmatically trained person to think that questioning my faith is itself, you know, an act of, of unbelief or something impious. I went to college. I was exposed to differing beliefs. I questioned them in the light of my belief system, and I came out believing in Jesus, believing in the Old Testament. Like, I can think of the days specifically when I was sitting on a park bench, literally sitting there making the decision to myself, am I going to keep going with this Bible stuff or not, and decided to do so. And the reason why I did decide to go forward with it was less a matter of tautologically, you know, believing in the Bible because the Bible says to believe in it, and more a matter of the fact that given the experiences that I have had up until that point, and indeed to this point today, an understanding of the world that incorporates the God of the Bible in it is makes more sense to me than any of the alternatives that are out there. Like, that's the closest thing I've got to rationality. My experience makes more sense when viewed through the light of Jesus and the Bible than it does when viewed through a purely naturalistic scientific light or a Hindu light or a Buddhist light or any of the other perspectives that I've read. That makes the most sense to me. And you can't necessarily disprove that because you can't necessarily disprove experience and how I interpret experience. So we may very well be back to, well, that's not going to convince anyone but you. Yeah, but it does convince me. That's all I need to believe that this Bible is true and that all of the authority that it claims is justified. It isn't necessarily something you can bring to an academic debate, but honestly, the academic debates aren't doing so great either, and again, disputing Mosaic authorship isn't terribly profitable either. I believe in Mosaic authorship because I believe in the Bible. I realize that that's tautological. I know that that's tautological. I know it's an act of faith. What I am saying is that until you can come up with something more concrete than pure conjecture and speculation about who may have written this otherwise, that faith is going to go unchallenged. But let's talk transmission. Let's say that the Bible was written by Moses. Let's, or let's say that the Pentateuch was written by Moses. Let's say that these five books of the Bible are in fact, as they claim to be, traditionally written as authoritative as I've made them out to be, then comes the second part of my student's question, and the question that they were really more interested in asking in the first place, how do we know that we got it right? 
Like, okay, let's assume that Moses wrote this. I don't want to address that particular question because, again, my students are lazy and they're just out to prove that they don't have to read the Bible. Um, so they don't need to, you know, have the question of mosaic authorship in some sense, though it is important for us to discuss that and bring it up here. The question that they're more interested in is, okay, Moses wrote it, Moses didn't write it, who cares? Because it's certainly been garbled in the 1500 or 3500 years since. But the fact of the matter is, on that one, this is a hard no. Like, and I'm not even, you know, going so far out of my way to dispute this. Like, with the exception of the debate about when this part of the Bible was written, virtually everybody is in lockstep about what happens from there. Um, from about the 5th century BCE, we have a group of scholars known as the Sophrim, um, who are meticulously preserving and protecting the Old Testament. Um, at this point, the entire Old Testament has been written, he says carefully, though not necessarily canonized. Like, everything from Genesis to Malachi is in fact written at the point that the Sophorim are taking over. But the Sophorim are going way out of their way, especially looking at the Pentateuch, the books of the law, as the, the Jews are increasingly inclined to refer to it, and preserving it with meticulous care. Now, according to those liberal scholars... The books of the law are a recent development. Like, J and E were writing, you know, their 9th century versions of this text based on considerably older oral tradition, sure, but D, especially that Deuteronomist writer who Josiah supposedly found in the temple, you know, that book is only like 150, 200 years old at this point. In any case, everybody agrees that come 400 BCE, like, we're getting quotes regularly, we're getting scholarship surrounding it, there is a tradition that reaches back this far into the past to say whatever it was, whatever the Bible or the Old Testament looked like at this particular point in time, there are a bunch of people who are working tirelessly to make sure that it stays that way for the next 600 years, um, i.e. through the uh, through Jesus and the rise of the Christians, um, through the fall of Jerusalem and the exile of, of the Jews from Palestine by the Romans, through the Maccabean period, like all of this is transpiring and we've got some dedicated scholars working day and night to make sure that this book stays this book, that it does not change. Um, this doesn't necessarily correspond with a textual tradition. Like, we do not have copies of the book that date back to 400 BCE. Um, what we do have, though, is the Dead Sea Scrolls. Um, the Qumran find in the 1950s dates back to the 1st century AD, possibly even the 1st century BC in some, in some of the older scrolls case. Um, what we do find is that those texts are remarkably similar to the Old Testament as we've got it. Um, not much has changed in 2,000 years, uh, which is kind of as definitive a refutation as you can get in this case. Like, this never happens in archaeological scholarship. Like, every now and again you'll find some, like, old-school text of Homer or an old-school text of Plato. It's super-duper rare, like, especially by comparison to the Old Testament. Like, we got thousands of copies of, like, fragmentary Old Testament scattered throughout, you know, the last 2,500 years of, of scholarship. Um, we have, like, a handful of copies of Plato and Aristotle, like, that are even close to as old. Um, and the Iliad and the Odyssey, while better attested, are still, like woefully short of the time um suffice it to say that like 
with the the testament of things like the Codex Alexandrinus um, or the finds uh, like of, of Old Testament and New Testaments combined, dating all the way back to like the fifth century and so on. Um, we've got some really good evidence that the Old Testament has not changed very much at all um, in at least 2,200 years. Um, part of this is because of those Sophorim, again, like sort of locking the canon and locking the texts into place in the 4th century BC. Part of that is due to the Septuagint. Um, in, I believe it's the 1st century BC, it might be the 2nd century, um, according to legend, there are 70 Jewish scholars who all individually decided to translate the entire Old Testament start to finish and somehow miraculously ended up with the exact same translation, which is why it's called the Septuagint or the LXX, i.e. the 70. Um, but Apocrypha aside, there was a very definitive Greek translation of the Old Testament written in the 1st or 2nd century BCE, largely because at this point the Jewish diaspora had grown so much that there were many Jews, like practicing faithful Jews, who didn't speak Hebrew anymore. And therefore the Old Testament was kind of useless to them in the original Hebrew or even in Aramaic Targums. Um, so they needed it in Greek. So the Septuagint was created to sort of fill that increasing demand for Old Testament writings in the Greek language that was now the vernacular of the time. Um, the Septuagint is a very functional translation, though. Um, like, the Jews who translated the Septuagint were much more interested in capturing the spirit of the text than the actual language of the text. Um, which is actually pretty indicative of the sort of perspective that Jews had of the Old Testament at the time. Like that itself is kind of interesting from a scholarly transmission standpoint. And they sort of like, okay, so how do the Jews appreciate their own uh, scriptures kind of standpoint? Um, like obviously they're more interested in what the book says than how the book says it. Um, so, you know, more questions about like how is inspiration viewed at this particular time? Um, Suffice it to say that the Septuagint is also a very definitive translation, and we've got tons of copies of it. Um, like, there are tons of full copies of the Septuagint. That is, you know, a major, uh, one of the uh, texts that is included in, like, several of the ancient texts that include the New Testament. Um, the New Testament itself quotes from the Septuagint pretty regularly. Like, any time that Jesus or one of his apostles quotes the Old Testament, any time that Paul quotes the Old Testament, it's almost guaranteed to be from the Septuagint. Like, it's literally word for word, as you'll find in the Septuagint. Um, so the Septuagint is also a big deal. Um, but importantly, we don't need to rely on it. Like, we don't have to, you know, just sort of accept the Greek version and call it a day. No, we do in fact have the Hebrew text as preserved by the Sophorim, especially as preserved by the Masoretes. Um, come the 3rd century AD and beyond, uh, there kind of springs up this, this Masoretic tradition, which not only preserves the Hebrew text, but has a huge sort of like scholarly apparatus for preserving it in text. Like, it's actually comparable to the way that um, contemporary computer scientists verify the, the sort of integrity of files, like determine whether or not a, a file on a computer is corrupted. Um, like, a contemporary computer scientist will have like a, a, a header at the beginning of a, a important document or an important piece of code um, or like important files, I should say. It's like actually in the text. Nobody actually writes this stuff. Um, it is all coded into the text. Um, but it is there to sort of say like, this is how long the document is. These are, you know, important like 
points in the text that you know you can confirm against the original and like a computer when opening a word document or opening a a, a video or a file um, will in fact check these markers and say okay does it fit all of these requirements if not i need to go back to the sender and make sure that the packet was delivered correctly like it's this whole thing the Masterites are essentially doing the same. Like, the Masterites have this system by which they have, like, this is how many letters should be in every single line, every single verse of the Old Testament. This is what the central character should be. This is, you know, like, th this really important word will appear next at this particular part of the text. Like, it's crazy well documented, and it's clear, and, like, we have not just the Masoretic text, like, the actual Old Testament as the Masoretes are studying it in something like Codex uh leningradensis but we also have like the Masoretes, you know like scholarly material we have the the diacritical marks the the, the textual references we have the apparatus as well so we can see that they have gone well out of their way to preserve this text in absolutely the same form as they received it in and this is part of why we have texts that you know date back to like the 8th or the 9th century as preserved by the Masoretes that match almost perfectly what we found at the Dead Sea Scrolls find in Qumran. You know, texts that are, in fact, 900 years older. Um, so when my students are like, eh, it couldn't have possibly been preserved in its actual form, my response is, no, really, it did. Like, there are all of these, you know, groups of people who have dedicated a great deal of their lives to making sure that the Old Testament and the Pentateuch especially was preserved absolutely intact. And if you don't trust those people, well, we have texts that date back to the 5th century AD, the 6th century AD, and indeed the 1st century AD with the Dead Sea Scrolls finds. We have literally no good reason to believe that the Old Testament has changed at all since the 4th century BCE. Like, we could speculate, sure, but we have no concrete good reason to think that the text has changed substantially, and especially not the Pentateuch. We may have plenty of reasons to doubt that the Pentateuch is what it should be before the 4th century BC. Again, this is the area where Wellhausen is free to say, like, oh, Deuteronomy wasn't written until the 6th century. We have no evidence to say that it was. Like, no concrete scholarly find. There is no, you know, fragment of Deuteronomy from like some Egyptian stella that you know dates back to like the seventh or the ninth century BCE or something that doesn't exist unfortunately. What we do have is very concrete evidence that the text has been preserved intact, has been preserved in the form that we have it all the way back to the first century uh, BCE. We also have no good scholarly evidence that the text was in some way definitively corrupted or messed up in the three centuries before that. Before that though. We have questions about the composition. We really don't have a leg to stand on either way as far as authorship or provenance. So what this basically comes down to is my students don't have a leg to stand on either. When they say I shouldn't have to study this text because it is corrupted, because people have distorted the original meaning, because, you know, like... 
three in three thousand years it's it's been passed down so many times like it, it's just a giant telephone game no that's not how it works that's not how textual criticism works that not that's not how textual scholarship works we have texts that are two thousand years old they conform to the texts that we have that are fifteen hundred years old and those texts are the ones that you are reading in your bible so you are in fact reading a 1500 year old, if not 2000 year old, if not 2500 year old, if not 3500 year old text. We have no good reason to think otherwise. Now textual criticism is more complicated than that. Yes, there are variant texts. Yes, there are scribal errors. Yes, there are issues in interpretation. Like in addition to texts that present the Pentateuch as we have it in contemporary Catholic and Protestant Bibles, we also have like Samaritan versions of the Pentateuch that say that actually the holy mountain where the temple should be isn't on Mount Zion at all, but actually over here in Samaria, go figure. But textual criticism is also a carefully documented scholarly practice at this point in time. Like, things have changed a lot since Wellhausen was like, maybe four people wrote it. What about that? Like, we do in fact have people who are carefully examining the text. We have a careful process for examining texts. And when we encounter something like the Samaritan version of the Pentateuch, we look at that and we say, there is an obvious reason why this text is different from the other texts that we have, the more established tradition. So if there are variants, we can usually ascribe to them reasons for why they are variants. This doesn't necessarily mean that the entire Old Testament is foolproof. There are definitely complicated passages, passages where our knowledge doesn't necessarily fill in the gaps in transmission, where the variant texts are equally com like compelling as far as which one should be in the actual Bible, or which one was originally composed by Moses or whoever. Whatever the case may be, th those Problems are few and far between. These texts are rock solid, especially from the perspective of scholars who are used to working with fragmentary texts like the trying to piece together the Gilgamesh or the Iliad or the Odyssey or any of Plato's work or any comparably ancient texts. Like when you are running around in biblical scholarship, the testimony preserving these texts intact is astonishingly good dare I say, miraculously good compared to the authority for many other texts. But on the other hand, and we need to emphasize this because there are many times that you'll like get reading some Christian apologist or, or Christian like introduction writer who emphasizes like, we've got 20,000 Old Testaments and only like 15 Iliads. Yeah, but the Iliad also doesn't claim to be, you know, the capital T truth in the way that the Old Testament does. The Old Testament demands closer scrutiny, requests closer scrutiny, relies on a historical testimony in a way that the Iliad just doesn't. So it's a higher level of fidelity, but also a higher standard of scrutiny. But that said, for my students who walk in and shoot from the hip, I don't need to pay attention to this text because it is undoubtedly corrupted by later writers and transmitters. Just no, it isn't. If you've got questions about where this text came from, I am willing to entertain those. As I just said, I am willing to entertain the possibility of non-Mosaic authorship. I think the jury is out on that front. I think that claiming Mosaic authorship is in fact an act of faith. In the same way that I think that accepting Wellhausian, you know, documentary hypothesis is at the end of the day an article of faith. 
But when it comes to, did we get the book right in the last 2,000 years? Almost certainly. There is, like, so little that is messed up, so little that is confused, so few textual problems, and they clearly do not represent, you know, like, some kind of major challenge to one's, to the primary articles of the Jewish or the Christian faith. No one in any of these alternative textual traditions is making wide distortions of, say, the Shema or the Ten Commandments. Heck, the Ten Commandments is one of the earliest uh, attested passages we have. These texts are as authoritative as they can be for texts that are this old. There are so few debates. Um, in fact, honestly, there's books that have been written way more recently, like in the 18th century, that have way more textual problems than something like the Old Testament or the New Testament. Um, so what the what my basic argument to my students ends up being when they ask this question, when they when they say, you know, how could it possibly be the same book as Moses wrote or whoever? My answer is always you're being lazy. You are not giving this question the amount of attention that it deserves. If you were really interested in the textual transmission, you would find that you have no leg to stand on here. And that there is, in fact, a place where you can debate this, but it does require making a choice. Arguing that against the authority of the tradition, that Moses didn't write this stuff and therefore I don't need to believe it for that reason. But that puts you in a camp. That requires you to do your homework. That's kind of the key here. Whatever you're going to ultimately say about the Old Testament and its reliability, its transmission, it requires you to do your homework. You need to know this stuff, not just parrot these wild ideas in the hopes of not having to do that homework, not having to think through it, not having to deal with the consequences or being accountable. Which is why I stressed that at the outset. At the end of the day, these students aren't interested in textual transmission. They're not interested in textual criticism. They are not interested in the elaborate history of various groups who have worked their entire lives to try and keep this text intact. They are interested instead in just not having that discussion and moving on with their lives as quickly as possible so they don't have to think about it. Um, and again, this is rational. I do not want to paint my paint a picture of my students that presents them as lazy or irrevocably corrupt or, or anything like that. This is rational because they have other things they'd rather be doing. Um, they'd rather be on their phones. They'd rather watch a new show on Netflix. They'd rather not be sitting in this classroom listening to me talk about the Bible. Um, they'd rather not have to pay attention to the Bible at all. It's stressful. It makes people angry. It frustrates them. It scares them in some sense. And this is a rational response to it, especially in the 21st century, when so much of biblical discussion is so heated and so angry and causes so much friction and even violence. Um, they rightfully want out of that discussion. I want to emphasize more than I want to emphasize anything else, there is no way out of that discussion. You will confront this, at the very least in this classroom, if not in your actual lives, and by not confronting this in your actual lives, you are taking a position in this discussion, and it's not a very good one. It is an untenable position. I will respect atheists who muster their arguments against the authority of this text. And I will respect Christians who dogmatically accept the authority of this text. What I will not accept are people who don't bother to investigate these issues, but just rely on what they have been told or come up with an easy solution to not having to study, not having to know this. And that goes for both 
the atheists who come to my class thinking, I don't want to have to deal with the Bible and I'm therefore not going to ask these questions, as well as the Christians who are just like, well, God said it, so I don't need to worry about it. Like, that's pretty lazy too. That also refuses to engage with people who you are supposed to be evangelizing to and answering perfectly legitimate questions that they have. If you are not ready to present this argument, sure, you should at least know somebody who is ready to present this argument. And I don't have any problem with a Christian who is like, I don't know, but here's my pastor who does. Or here's Professor Kozlowski's lecture on, you know, Professor Kozlowski lectures. By all means, keep sharing and subscribing, folks. Um, but, you know, as long as you have that resource available, you know who you would talk to. And don't consider it just beneath your notice that your faith will be enough to get you through the hard times and be able to deal with any conversation that comes your way. That's the key. Like, don't blow it off. You don't necessarily have to do as much homework as I have done. I'm a professional. This is my job. This is what I get paid to do. Um, but... You also don't necessarily get to just pretend like it doesn't exist. That you will not listen to anyone who has anything to say against Mosaic authorship. Even if knowing that stuff might help you to convince other people otherwise. Or that you don't need to pay attention to anyone who does have something nice to say about Mosaic authorship. Um, because it's not worth your time. It is. Um, again, souls are on the line here whether you believe this or whether you refuse to believe this, whether you accept this or whether you deny this. But those are your options. There's no place for fence-sitting. There's no place for, maybe if I ignore it, it'll go away. There is no place for, eh, I got better things to do, so I'm not going to pay attention. That puts you in a camp, whether or not you think you, it does. And from the perspective of both the Christian desperately trying to get you to believe to save your soul and the atheist who is convinced that, you know, Christianity is destroying the world, your fence sitting is in fact a major problem. Um, so yeah, take a side. There's kind of no room not to at this point. But that's just the first question. Oh my gosh, we spent an hour just talking about the first question. Um, this is going to be a long one, apparently. It already is a long one. Even if I stopped right now, it'd be a long one. Maybe I should do this in two parts. Too late, we're doing it. Um, so, next question that I usually run into that my students are most eager to bring up are something along the lines of, well, I read this one Huffington Post article, or my mom told me about this article in The Economist, or my other professor in my other class told me that there was this archaeological find, or, you know, somebody somewhere at some point told me that science says that we could explain this passage in the text in a different way. Um, these arguments are legion. And I do not have an explanation for every single one of them because there are too many of them and because this is the kind of thing that is changing all of the time. Uh, the argument du jour keeps moving. Um, this is also kind of an interesting rhetorical strategy for undermining the, the tenets of the Christian faith. Um, atheists are always very excited to alight on whatever the new archaeological discovery is that possibly, you know, shuts down Christian, uh, Christian arguments in the same way that Christians are like, oh my gosh, we found the, we found the Ark. It's the Ark, guys, the one from Genesis. And it's like, uh, maybe like, actually let's date that. Uh, maybe it's not that like. It's super complicated, but inevitably there are always these new archaeological finds or like scientific gossip, little fiddly details 
that are sort of presented to argue against one specific passage in the Bible, one specific passage in, you know, the Old or New Testament, or one specific plot point, or whatever. Um, and like I said, these arguments are legion. And I'm going to try and give a blanket response to all of them. Uh, because, again, you can't confront each one individually. They keep moving, they keep changing, and I probably haven't heard of 80% of them. Like, as much as I am a biblical scholar, I am not an archaeologist, and, you know, I, I do not spend a lot of my time trolling the, the various Christian or atheist websites looking for examples of this stuff. Um, it doesn't interest me, in short. I'm, I'm a mythology guy. I read the book to see what it says. Um, but let's at least confront these. Um, I do typically put these into two camps. Specifically, there's the archaeology side, and then there is the scientific refutation side. Um, so for an example of the archaeology side, you might get something like, hey, they found the ark. It was on a mountain just where God said it would be. And there's like, I don't know, some, some wood and, and like a, a basic structure of, of a boat. So, you know, it's probably the ark. It is on the right mountain, I guess, question mark. Um, it is roughly the right size, maybe, question mark. Um, first and foremost, I want to stress like, Again, there's only so much use that these archaeological discoveries actually have. Um, every time one of these things happens, like some big new archaeological find in, in the Holy Land, or even like a modest archaeological find that like gets publicized especially widely, usually when I'm looking at it, I'm thinking not so much about like, what does this mean for biblical scholarship? Because usually it doesn't mean anything for biblical scholarship. Like with the possible exception of the Dead Sea Scrolls finds, in the last like 70 years, I don't think any archaeological discovery has been so groundbreaking as to radically transform the way that we understand the Bible. Um, and the Dead Sea Scrolls finds, as radical and transformative as it was, was, at the end of the day, a radically transformative pro-Christian find. Insofar as it meant that the authority of the, of the Old Testament uh, writings could be extended another, like, three, four hundred years. Um, which maybe we should be giving Wellhouse more credit. He didn't have Dead Sea Scrolls to look at, at least. Um, but at the end of the day, it's like, okay, we found the Ark, for example. Did you, though? Like, maybe you found a boat, which is not a place that, or not something that you would typically find on a mountain, sure. And maybe that does give us some evidence for some for the flood narrative as it is portrayed in the Bible. Uh, maybe it is impressive that like somebody like Ken Ham at the, the Creation Museum has successfully built an ark replica and proven that you can in fact use the technology and materials of the time to produce a ship that can in fact hold as much as is depicted in you know Genesis 5 to 7. That's all fine, but it is very, very rare that any of these finds actually proves anything pro or con about the Old Testament. Like, let's say, for example, that some scholar finds a tablet in the middle of the desert that, that obviously comes from some sort of Egyptian-like stella and that attests to Jewish slaves. This is actually fairly common. It happens pretty frequently. We know that the Jews were, in fact, in Egypt, that they were, in fact, the slaves at one point in the history. There, there seems to be some pretty good evidence for that. But let's say that we find that. Something that is absolutely irrefutable. This 
Pharaoh says that he has X amount of Hebrew slaves. Um, cool. Now what? On the one hand, we're going to get Christians saying, look, this is a proof for why the Old Testament is, in fact, what it says it is. It confirms the testimony of this particular passage in Exodus. While other archaeologists are going to say, hey, uh, what if that was actually created in a later time period? Like, what if this is, in fact, you know, a, a you know concoction of Old Testament scholars trying to, like, perpetuate their own perspective? Yes, we can carbon date the thing, and maybe upon carbon dating it, we find that it is authentically Egyptian dynasty, you know, like it is of the right time period. Then the, the atheist scholars are just going to pivot and say, you know, okay, so you successfully proved that there were Hebrews in Egypt. Now what? Like, it doesn't prove that God was there. It doesn't prove the plagues happened. It doesn't prove, like, the world, you know, was radically transformed in the way the Old Testament says it was. Your archaeological evidence is of limited value. The sort of evidence that would be necessary to absolutely and definitively prove the truth of the supernatural events transpiring in the Old Testament would be would have to be pretty impressive, would have to be really remarkable. Like we would need to find a, you know, stone structure in ancient Egypt pitted with like the places where the flaming hailstones hit. Um that would probably be the only evidence that could survive for 3,500 years. Like, most of the plagues that are reported in the Old Testament don't actually give us a lot in the way of, you know, concrete evidence and details. Like, take, for example, plague number one, the famous, you know, God turns the, the river Nile into blood. Like, there are actually quite a few scholars who have contested that, you know, maybe there was, like, this kind of rusty residue that came down from some mountain somewhere and caused the water to turn red for a while. Like, maybe they've even duplicated this with some kind of experiment. At the end of the day, what does that argue, though? Because on the one hand, the Christian will look at that and say, you know, that doesn't disprove the fact that at one point they turned to blood and then God, like, turned it back to water because, you know, God would successfully turn it back to water, therefore there wouldn't be any archaeological traces that it was blood in the first place. On the other hand, you might have Christians who say that and say, well, actually, that would be a perfectly legitimate, you know, explanation. Maybe that's what Moses meant by turning it to blood. So you're not actually changing Christians' minds, even if they believe that you're right. But on the other hand, you're also not, you know, refuting anything by saying that this was the case. You are not saying, you know, the Old Testament didn't happen, you are making a case on the grounds that it did, but not the way that they said it did. So nobody's minds are changed. Again, the, the necessity for some kind of evidence that would be absolutely irrefutable, it just, like, I can't even imagine the possibility of such a thing existing from an archaeological standpoint. Like, let's take that, you know, dramatic find thing. Like, oh, we found, you know, a stone building that has the pits and hollows of something that both, like, hit and damaged the thing, but also set it on fire somehow. Like, first of all, if it was in fact set on fire, then it probably burned down and it no longer exists. So, pff, there goes your archaeological evidence in the first place. Second, any archaeologist worth their salt who would look at a text 
look at a find like this would say there are many explanations for how this could come to be maybe you know the city was sacked at one point and flaming debris hit this house but somebody like put it out before it was completely destroyed this doesn't necessarily have to be evidence of the flaming hailstones that you know the hebrews report in the old testament what i'm saying here is that like archaeological evidence is never going to prove or disprove the bible and anytime my student brings up, hey, wasn't there some archaeological find, it is actually all the more compelling because the student usually doesn't remember it that well. Like, because there is, hey, what about that thing that that guy in that place found? Actually, like, all my students are like, yeah, what about that thing that that guy in that place? And I'm like, which guy, which place, which thing? And the students like, oh, you know, like a couple years ago, maybe three or four, I don't remember exactly, I remember reading it, but there was that thing with that guy in that place, and then the rest of the students are like, yeah, that thing with that guy in that place. I'm like, I don't know what thing, guy, or place you're talking about, dude. But my students don't hear the, this is ridiculous, how could you possibly be trying to make an argument with literally no details, no facts whatsoever. What my students are carrying away is, there is a thing, or a guy, or a place, that clearly proves that the Bible is wrong. Whereas that's not true, and that's not how archaeology works, and that's not how science works. Like, again, a definitive proof is downright impossible, I would venture to say. Like, short of finding some elaborate personal journal of, you know, King Ramesses the whoever, who is systematically documenting, and then Moses showed up again today, and then all of these frogs showed up, which isn't likely to exist. One, because, again, this is not how the Egyptians, you know, did history. History was done after the fact. Second, this, the Egyptian histories tend to be slanted in their favor. Like, archaeologists consider this in considering history and, and, you know, the documentary evidence that they do stumble across. Like, typically, two different cultures reporting the outcome of a war will, will in fact, slant it very differently to make themselves look better. Like, as far as the Egyptians are concerned, they've never lost a war. You can find tons of archaeological evidence documenting in great detail the victories of the Egyptians over their various enemies because they erect monuments and they build statues and they, like, inscribe the information about those battles into the statues. Um, we don't have a whole lot of evidence of Egyptian defeats because when they are defeated, presumably, they don't write about it so much. They don't build a statue in honor of that time that they got their butts kicked by the Babylonians. Like... We put up a Vietnam War memorial to memorialize all of the people who lost their lives in Vietnam. At no place in Washington, D.C. are you going to find a statue commemorating that time that we had to evacuate Vietnam because we got our butts kicked by the North Vietnamese. In fact, if you look in a textbook, you will not find it framed in that way. We did not lose the Vietnam War. We didn't lose anything, thank you very much. We just decided that it wasn't worth fighting anymore. Even though, you know, when the British decided they weren't interested in fighting anymore, we called it the victory of the Revolutionary War. People don't talk about their losses. There isn't archaeological evidence for that time the Egyptians got their butts kicked by the Hebrews and their God because the Egyptians aren't likely to admit that they got their butts kicked by a handful of slaves and their God. 
Instead, they just went on worshiping the gods that they worshipped. They went on being awesome and, and talking about how awesome they were. If there is some evidence of the exodus occurring, it is going to be in the evidence of omission and absence. I.e., it's going to be subject to speculation, debate, and question in the same way that all of the archaeological finds we have are subject to debate and question. If you read the Old Testament carefully, and we will be, but we're not with this in mind, you will not find any room for concrete scientific evidence proving that God did the things that he did. You can find texts that record it, like the Old Testament itself, but those will be subject to scrutiny and bias. You can find archaeological evidence of something happening in a place where it is up to our interpretation of that evidence to piece together what actually happened in that place at that time, etc. But the fact of the matter is, for most lay people out in the world reading their news articles, what they are taking away is there is a thing that proves the reliability or the unreliability of the Bible, and that's what they carry away. They don't remember the dates and times, they don't remember the places, they don't remember the arguments, they don't remember the flaws of the reasoning, because again, they're not trained archaeologists looking for these problems. So they come to my classroom and they say, I remember that thing in that place at that time. And I'm like, no. And they're like, well, it said that the Bible wasn't right. And it's like, how do you argue with this? This is a surefire, bulletproof argument just because it is so amorphous, so impossible to pin down, that there's nothing to argue against. So the only way to respond to that is, uh, come back when you got details. Like, I will take into consideration your evidence when you have evidence for me to consider. But the fact of the matter is, big, broad, sweeping statement here... There is no archaeological evidence that is going to dis definitively prove the existence or non-existence of supernatural miracles. It's not possible. Like, I defy you to come up with even a theoretical example of an irrefutable proof either rejecting completely or, or proving completely the truth of the Bible. I, I just can't. I, I can't think about it. Like, it it's not possible to me. So, yeah, that Egyptian silence business, and there are some questions about that. Like, Christians point to certain silences in the Egyptian history or the Egyptian historical record and say that, that's where the exodus happened. But at the end of the day, they are arguing from, because there is a lack of evidence, because we don't know how it transpired, because some sort of catastrophe clearly happened in Egypt at this point in time, but we can't pin down exactly what it was, and any archaeologist worth their salt is going to come back and say, well, it could have been anything. It could have been sacking. At the same time, the Egyptians were under attack from so-and-so, or maybe there's this thing that says that there was something else. We got nothing. Like, nothing. Zero. So yeah, every time some student comes up with an archaeological evidence, my usual response is, this is ridiculous, show me the actual article and we can discuss it, but at the end of the day, archaeology is not going to be the deciding factor one way or the other. Now, the science explanation is another one that I get pretty often. This one my students typically remember because it's more story-ish in its framing and usually doesn't involve an actual, like, article on the Huffington Post or something. Usually it's like Professor So-and-So in my history class or Professor So-and-So, you know, at some other school or this YouTube video or YouTube commentator or Professor Kozlowski on his podcast lectures said that, you know... 
actually, it wasn't the Red Sea that they crossed. It was the Reed Sea. And as most scientists know, the Reed Sea actually recedes to the point that you can walk over it at certain months of the year in the course of its normal cycle. So obviously what the text is saying here is not that the Egyptian or that the Israelites crossed the Red Sea to do some miracle. That's ridiculous. Instead, they crossed the Reed Sea, which was totally possible, totally scientific so totally scientifically explainable and then you know some redactor or editor just like trumped up the story at some point to make it sound like it was a miracle to which i respond no like there are tons of arguments like this they're actually super popular today uh there's the reed c one there's the one about like Actually, it's the rust-colored liquid from, like, the mountains that made the, the river turn red. And because of the rust, it, like, made all the frogs go on the land. And then the frogs all died. And then because of all the dead frogs, there are all these flies around. So, actually, all of the ten plagues are perfectly explainable scientific phenomena. And nothing supernatural needs to have happened. Like... There are many, many of these arguments as well. They're even more common than the archaeological evidence. Like one time I read that article and it said that, you know, whatever. Um, people love to demythologize the Old Testament, to reduce it to something scientifically observable and, you know, defensible. And again, the, the sort of like reasoning behind this kind of baffles me in some ways. Students frequently present these arguments, but they're not presenting them necessarily to refute the truth of the Old Testament. Like, it wasn't the Red Sea, it was the Reed Sea. They got it wrong. But rather to say, this is how I make the Old Testament's existence fit with the scientific truth that I believe. Those people weren't, you know, like subject to some kind of religious revelation. They weren't wrong in what they wrote. They just distorted it a bit. Like, most of the students who present an argument like this are doing the same thing that the students who presented the, you know, the, the text must have changed in 3,500 years, so, like, I don't need to pay attention to it, kind of lazy arguments here. They want to have their cake and eat it too. They want to say, the Bible isn't wrong wrong, it's just a little wrong. Like, not, not totally wrong but just a little wrong. They're, they're just up-jumped stories of things that actually happened. They got a bunch of, like, dragons and stuff mixed in, kind of like Herodotus does. So, so, you know, you can believe the Bible if you want to. Like, I'm not going to pick fights with Christians. That's not what I'm here for. I'm just here to say, you know, like, it's true, but not so true that I have to, like, spend my life believing in God or something. That's ultimately what they're there for. That's what most of these arguments are there for. That's what most people want to believe. They want to believe that the Bible is true, but not so true that they have to change their life in order to conform to it. They want it to be true that there is a heaven that they're going to, but not so true that, like, they need to, you know, radically change their behavior in order to get there. That's 95% of people and their relationship to the Bible. And these scientific explanations fit very neatly into that perspective. Wasn't the Red Sea, it was the Reed Sea wasn't some kind of miraculous series of plagues. It was natural scientific phenomena that were admittedly unusual and possibly like crazy important to the people who actually lived there in that time, who of course were, you know, unscientific and stupid and gullible. And therefore, you know, like these are the same people who are like, oh my gosh, the sun is eclipsing. We're all gonna die. Like, 
First off, let me stress, those people were not stupid. They were every bit as intelligent as we were. Um, they had different sets of experiences and different lenses through which to process the universe, granted. But they were not fools. They knew more about astronomical phenomena than we did in most cases. And while most of them did not exactly understand what an eclipse was, they did understand insofar as they knew that these things did in fact happen. Like, the eclipses changing the course of history, like everybody being in the middle of the war and then an eclipse happens and they all stop fighting. Like, I think this happened in 1066, I want to say. Because, um, you know, 1066 had enough going for it. Um, like, when eclipses happen and do change the course of history, it's usually because people take these as signs from God. They recognize that, oh yeah, eclipses do happen. But they're not like, ah, the world is ending! We're all going to die! Like, they're like, oh, actually, God doesn't want us to do this anymore, so we're, we're going we're gonna to stop now. Like, I'm not ruling out the possibility of the world is ending, we're all going to die. Because, again, it is a traumatic experience, and a lot of people are used to seeing the sun in its normal, you know, position. And therefore, like, we get that, you know, like this is kind of a big deal and maybe you know this sign of god's displeasure is so great that god's not going to bring the sun back out again at all but to give you an example here i don't really buy the you know three days of darkness and the sun being out in the exodus story as being explained by an eclipse like the hebrews knew roughly what eclipses were they were within the written record. These things had happened. But what we're describing here, three days of darkness and one area illuminated while others are dark, that's not eclipse stuff. That, that's wildly different from eclipse stuff. And in fact, the text is going out of its way to emphasize that this is wildly different from usual astronomical phenomena that people will in fact observe during their lifetimes. What the text is emphasizing is this stuff is wild. Like the whole point of the Exodus story, if you read it closely, God is saying, I am going to beat the ever-living crap out of these Egyptians. I am going to tan their hide so hard that they are never going to forget what God did here. And in fact, the point of the Hebrews being this weak slave people without an army, without weapons, etc., going up against literally the most powerful empire in the ancient world, the point of this is for God to say, I did that. I, God, rescued the Hebrews. They had nothing to do with it. They would have been helpless, totally weak and defenseless if left to their own devices i am here to make a point and the point is i am god these are my people do not mess with them or you will get me messing with you if it's not a miracle it's not worth writing about it misses the point like are you really going to try and convince me that the hebrews were so lost in the desert that they couldn't tell the difference between the Reed Sea and the Red Sea. Red Sea's a lot bigger, guys. It's huge. It's a massive landmark. And for that matter, the Old Testament track, like if you try and track where they are going and how they get from point A to point B, you can't get there going over the Reed Sea. Like you're going to have to go way out of your way to get to the, the desert where Moses is going to get the Ten Commandments if you're not going over the Red Sea. 
So, yeah, let's not treat these people as morons. Let's not treat them as being completely oblivious to scientific phenomena. Let's not treat them like they have never seen an eclipse before. Let's not treat them as though they don't know how the desert works. You don't know how the desert works. They lived in it. That was their lives. That's where they got up and ate breakfast every morning. Like, they know the desert. They know how it works. They know it's a big deal when locusts show up in those numbers. They know it's hugely important when the entire river becomes blood. They know it's hugely significant when all of a sudden, out of the blue, a bunch of cows get super sick overnight and die. Yes, plagues happen. They know about those. Yes, weird weather phenomena happens. They know about those too. Yes, the Nile occasionally turns weird colors when dirt gets involved. They know about that too. Anything that science has observed happening regularly enough in, you know, the world of the ancient Near East is probably something they also knew about. But they are reporting this stuff because it is a miracle. Because it is supernaturally motivated. Because it cannot be explained any other way. So yeah, this isn't necessarily a refutation like, my students, when I say this to them, they, they walk away thinking, well, it could still be the Reed Sea. Yeah, it could. I can't say for sure in the same way that I can't say who wrote the gospel or who wrote the Pentateuch. I wasn't there. But at the end of the day, it misses the point. This is also an article of faith. This is also saying God did something that was big, showy, and memorable. He did it by breaking the rules of scientific law, by changing the way reality works for brief periods of time. And honestly, the plagues aren't even that impressive compared to I stopped the world rotating so we could have a battle for a while, or that time that that guy's donkey started talking to him, or any number of other wild and crazy things that we're going to be talking about in the Book of Numbers, because let me tell you, the Book of Numbers, man, what I want to emphasize is that these people knew what miracles were, and they are reporting them as miracles. And on the one hand, science can say that, but, but, but miracles don't happen. And at the end of the day, that's what you bring into the text, not something that is proven by it or not by it. Demythologizing the Old Testament with these explanations, Reed Sea instead of Red Sea, plagues were totally natural phenomena, maybe, you know, Balaam just thought he was talking to his ass, he was in the desert for a long while after a while, after all. Um, this does not shake my faith, nor does it restore it, nor does it, like, protect this text from anything. It doesn't do anything, it doesn't, it has no merit, no weight, no currency in the debate about the authority of this text. So as much as my students think this is valuable, again, because it allows them to think the text is right, but not so right that they have to change their lives to conform to it, at the end of the day, it doesn't prove anything. It doesn't prove anything. It has no weight to prove or disprove. It is an observation made by scientists as a part of a competing theory that presents the Old Testament as being written by people who didn't necessarily understand everything that was going on around them. An attempt to prove that people could still write this stuff in good faith and yet not be motivated by actual supernatural events that would disrupt the natural course of scientific, you know, law. 
that would not change our understanding of the world in so dramatic a way as to require new theories, new understandings of the universe. But science doesn't need to do that. Science can just say, uh, that book is false. It is wrong. Like, it, 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 we don't need to take it seriously. It is not authoritative for science. And they can be done. What really motivates this sort of effort to make both of them fit together is the fact that we don't want to throw out those texts. We don't want the Old Testament to be wrong. We want it to be just right enough. Which brings us to the last part of our discussion here. The last series of arguments that my students are quick to bring up when it comes to, okay, so reliability of the Old Testament, good or bad, true or false, etc. And those are, to put them broadly, content questions. But God's a jerk. But God hates women. But God allows for slavery. But God, you know, commits genocide on the Canaanites. But God hates homosexuals and yet... You know, some of my best friends are gay. These are what I like to call content questions. And these are the questions that I'm actually legitimately interested in answering. Because at the end of the day, they do present a more important philosophical argument that we have to wrestle with. Like, as much as the question, you know, what could it have been the Reed Sea, not the Red Sea, has zero currency in trying to determine the authenticity or authority of this text, the question is God a jerk actually has a lot of authority in the question of whether or not we should, you know, regard this text as respectable. As Thomas Aquinas put it way back in, you know, the Summa Theologica, there are essentially two arguments against the existence of God. One of them is that God and evil are incompatible, and yet somehow we are reported to have both. And the second one is we don't have room for him. Science explains everything. We don't necessarily need God to explain the universe. And to my knowledge, these are the only two refutations of the existence of God that I have ever encountered. They will always either take the form of, I don't want to believe in God because God's a jerk. He does awful things and I refuse to align myself with him, even if he does exist. Or, I don't need God in my explanation for the universe. I'm doing just fine without him. Thank you very much. These are the best arguments anyone can muster. They are the only arguments anyone can muster. You can reject the, author, the authority of the gospel until you're blue in the face, and all you're going to end up with is, again, one of the two. Either I'm not believing in God because God's a jerk, because evil exists, or God allows this, or this is incompatible with God's nature as it's reported in this text, and therefore I'm going to look for some other God, thank you very much. Or alternatively... I am satisfied with what science has told me. God doesn't necessarily present anything new that I need. Um, and that's fine. Like, I'm not here to answer or quell those questions. Aquinas did a good job there. We talked about that in an earlier lecture. Like, there are plenty of people who are willing to confront you on content questions like this. Heck, we will talk about this when we come to these passages in the Pentateuch. But they're not Old Testament introduction questions. They're not, you know, where did this text come from? Can we believe it? Does science, in fact, have, you know, something to refute this? Like, heck, even the questions about archaeology and science are, at the end of the day, content questions. The only ones that weren't were the ones that's like, I'm not going to trust this book because I don't know where it came from, which we already dealt with extensively. So we're not going to answer those questions now. We're going to answer them when we encounter them in the text. When God says, hey, go kill all the Canaanites, we'll talk about how that fits with God's character. Um, when we have questions about, hey, why does God destroy Sodom and Gomorrah? Yeah, we'll talk about how that reflects on God's character. When we come to the passage in Leviticus 18 where it says, 
homosexuality is an abomination. We'll talk about that and how it fits with God's character. And at that point, you will be free to decide. Is this God somebody I want to follow? Is this God just a product of its culture, time, and place? Is this God, in fact, the universal eternal being that I've been promised? Is this God, in fact, someone who can see the joy that is brought to homosexual couples by their having sex together? Or is something else going on here? Does this guy have a point? Does this guy not have a point? Whatever. We'll deal with those in the text. For now, the takeaway here, the overall message, is that those questions imply thinking. We're having a conversation now. We're talking about the common ground of what this text says and how am I supposed to interpret it, which is what this entire lecture series is supposed to be about. The other questions, the I don't have to believe in this text because I don't know where it came from questions, the but archaeology says X question or science says Y questions, these are questions that are designed to be largely irrefutable and to uh, exist in the questioner's mind in place of a solution. They don't want answers. These Old Testament introduction questions, as important as they are and as interesting as they are, are at the end of the day a smokescreen. They're not relevant. They are, at the end of the day, not what most people are interested in talking about when they say, I believe in the Bible or I don't believe in the Bible. The reasons they do or do not believe in the Bible rarely have anything to do with the deep, meaningful scholarship that Archer and company are engaged in in these introductory texts. As much as I have spent two and a half hours talking about these questions, at the end of the day, I don't think they're terribly important. I think they're interesting. I think that they are important to talk about if only because then we can offer definitive responses to people who are asking these questions in bad faith in one respect or another. But at the end of the day, you need to do your homework is what it comes down to. If you were actually interested in the question of mosaic authorship, there are tons of books on the subject that you don't want to read and you're just bringing up this question in order to sort of like avoid having to take responsibility for whatever's going on in Old Testament and whatever the Bible is telling you you should or shouldn't do. It's not about the authorship. It's not about the textual transmission. It's definitely not about the textual transmission. Again, that one's rock solid. Like, no scholar worth their salt is going to be questioning that, like, the, the Bible as we have it isn't, you know, 2,500 years old and change. Um, it's almost certainly that, even if we do consider it redacted in the thousand years prior. Um, what I want to reckon with, what I want to encourage, is if you do have these questions, do not settle for them. Go do your homework. If this stuff sounds interesting to you, go read Archer's Survey of Old Testament Introduction. Or go read some of the con or contrary thinkers. Go read Wellhausen. Go read some sort of 20th century apologist for Wellhausen, assuming such a person exists. I emphasize that I didn't feel the need to because, again, I don't think these questions are terribly interesting. Almost every one of them is going to get answered in one of two ways. Either your question is nonsense, as in the case of the, you know, somebody corrupted the text in over the last 1,500 years. No, they didn't. Or if they did, you're going to have to point to where specifically you have in mind. 
But the other one is, it doesn't matter because at the end of the day, people are going to believe what they're going to believe, and there is not enough evidence one way or the other, nor could there be evidence one way or the other to effectively disprove the people who believe otherwise. These are not the battlefields on which people are fighting and changing their perspectives. They just aren't. Like, maybe once in a while you'll hear from someone like Lee Strobel who's like, I tried to prove the Old Testament wrong and then I did my homework and it turns out I became a Christian. Like, that's possible. Maybe doing the scholarship can help some people to convert. But 99% of discussions about Old Testament or New Testament introduction are not going to yield changes in perspective. They're going to yield changes in knowledge, perhaps. They might even yield changes in scholarship. But they're not going to yield changes in attitude. Again, the foundational thing that you take away from the Old Testament is going to be the foundational thing that you brought to it. If you were going to go in thinking... There is a God, he has done supernatural things in history, I am going to find out what those things were. What you will find out is what those things were. And if you go in thinking there is no God, there are no supernatural miracles, and this text is full of nonsense, what you're going to get from reading it is this text was full of nonsense. Like I said, the moderate perspective that I am going to try and adopt is one that is a skeptical one. I am going to look at it from the perspective that, hey, maybe Moses wrote this, maybe Moses didn't write this. Maybe there are some passages that seem pretty obviously mosaic, maybe there are some passages that aren't. But broadly speaking, having looked at the other sources, having looked at the way that texts were composed in this time, I'm thinking probably an oral tradition, especially for Genesis, maybe a couple oral traditions that Moses is synthesizing, don't know. But I definitely don't see any evidence to rule out Moses as author, and I definitely don't see any concrete evidence to accept Wellhausen's hypothesis is there are a whole bunch of people. Um, I also don't accept or don't think there's a whole ton of evidence saying that Moses is for sure the author, except for the fact that, like, when I read the Iliad, I assume that it's Homer, even though, you know, there's probably even less evidence for that. So Moses is convenient to point to here, I guess. Moses is as good an author as we're likely to have, so I'm going to refer to him as Moses, and if you don't like that, well, maybe just, like, I don't know, bleep it out in your mind and say J or E or, you know, the Deuteronomist, in fact, is, is the one writing this. But again, I'm not interested in these questions so much. I'm interested in what does this text say? Because whatever you say about the scholarly scientific foundations for this text, the provenance, the authorship, the introduction, the criticism, whatever you want to call it, at the end of the day, we're left with this text and literally millions of people who believe that it is true. These are realities that we cannot object to or refute or bury under some kind of scientific argument. They are facts. We have to deal with this as the foundation for a religion that many, many people take as the capital T truth. And no amount of these evidences are going to prove to them that it's not. So instead, we should be looking at what does this text actually say? What do these people actually believe? Does this text conform to what those people say they believe and the way that they behave as a consequence? That's what I'm interested in. That's what's going to make the difference between I believe in this text and I do not believe in this text. I think that Christianity is a good thing for people to practice or I think Christianity is a bad thing for people to practice. 
That's the more fundamental question. That's the one that these little introduction questions tend to wallpaper over. I don't want to get bogged down in the minutia. I want to talk about the meat. I want to talk about the content. So next week, we do away with the introductory materials. We will probably visit some of them again. Um, I am undoubtedly going to talk about the friction between science and, and religion in multiple places, as especially when we talk about the book of Genesis, uh, especially next week as we talk about Genesis 1 to 3. Um, but broadly speaking, when we're talking about the Bible going forward, we're going to be taking it on its own terms. It says supernatural miraculous things happened, so we're going to accept that these are supernatural miraculous things that happened. We are going to maybe question, could this thing have happened in another way? Could this be reported in another way? But probably only briefly. Because again, I'm not interested in that. Because the author isn't interested in that. Because the author is trying to make a point that is directly at odds with that particular perspective. So, starting next week, we start reading the Pentateuch. And we're going to take it as seriously as we can. We are going to look at what it is emphasizing. We are going to look at what it is communicating. We are going to treat it as seriously as we would treat any other work of mythology with the added bonus that we know that there are lots and lots of people who say that they believe this text and maybe taking them to task for the things that they do or do not practice. That's my goal. So next week, Genesis 1 to 3. And yeah, that's it. We're, we're just going to do Genesis 1 to 3. I have no doubt in my mind that we will be able to have at least an hour and a half's discussion on just Genesis 1 to 3. Um, it is pretty rare that I actually get to treat the entirety of the, what there is to say about Genesis 1 to 3 in a single, you know, lecture because usually I'm like bouncing off to other things or incorporating it as part of a grander understanding of the Bible. Finally, I get to do Genesis 1 to 3 and yeah, I'm going to do it for reals. Um... We're going to talk about, yes, what the Bible actually says there, Genesis 1 to 3, God's creation of the, of the world, as well as all the way up to the fall. But I want to look at the real details, the nitty gritty here, what exactly is being emphasized. Like, this is as close to a line read as we're going to get in, the, in this whole series. Um, and it makes sense to do it now because this is one of the most hotly contested, one of the most difficult to interpret one of the most troublesome passages in the entire bible and the passage that everything else in this bible is going to you know rest upon in many ways so yeah we're gonna do the the deep dive on genesis 1 to 3 um so in addition to the close reading we are going to look at the applications like i want to talk about how this fits in with science how this fits in with evolution how this fits in with like the long understanding of, of the the you know coming about of the universe i want to point to things like augustine's reconciliation of science with with theology um i want to talk about the you know possible ramifications for how men and women are supposed to behave with one another based on what we find in the fall like all of that is fair game if you've listened to my mythology lectures if you've listened to my philosophy lectures you've probably heard some of this stuff before and i imagine this will be the first time that it's all coming together in the same place at the same time but yeah that's it. Next week, Genesis 1 to 3. I look forward to talking about it with you soon. Hey, thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed that last discussion. Uh, I should stress this is hardly the end of the Professor Kozlowski online presence. If you want to read some of my essays or look into some of the other work that I'm doing in and around the internet, or perhaps take one of my classes more formally, uh, Please check me out at professorkoslowski.wordpress.com. That's very much the nexus point for all the stuff that I am doing online, and I usually keep it pretty well updated. 
Um, I should also stress we've got a lot of ambitious projects coming forward this year. Um, but a lot of those projects are kind of piecemeal and, and stalled as long as I'm not making a whole lot of money on this venture. Um, so the two ways that you can definitely help to make Professor Kozlowski Lectures a success are like, share, and subscribe. Get the word out. Let people know that I'm talking about something that you're interested in or that there's something interesting going on with the work that I'm doing. And if you can, absolutely, please consider contributing to Professor to my Patreon at patreon.com slash Professor Kozlowski. Um, a little bit of money goes a long way there, and it helps you to vote on the new topics that we're going to come up with, or even uh, suggest new topics, especially for one-off summer lectures. So I hope to hear from you soon. I hope that you, you know, get that word out, and I'll be back soon with a new lecture.